psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger. Who was behind the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States? He's dead, and they can close the case, and he can't defend himself. The lone gunman theory fits the needs of the FBI. The investigation spans the globe, uncovering the deadly world of germ warfare. It was about killing people and not being able to be found out. Designing assassination weapons, classic spy stuff. Are we on the verge of the unthinkable? They could launch biowarfare by means of anthrax anywhere in the world today. Anthrax War. You must understand that the human race stands at a critical turning point in terms of biowarfare technology. We are at risk now as I speak. It was the 21st century's first act of biological terrorism. And that set investigative journalist Bob Cohen on his journey to penetrate the darkest secrets of many countries, allies and enemies alike, and all linked by their common pursuit of the ultimate bioweapon. If his travels are teaching him anything, it's this. When it comes to bioterrorism, the terrorists are not who you might expect. It came through the mail, just weeks after 9-11. New terror attacks. First in Florida, then New York and Washington. Anthrax. It spread fear and panic through the nation. Two media offices and a Microsoft office received letters containing anthrax. One man is dead, two people are being treated for the infection. Someone had mailed letters laced with the deadly powder to the media and to U.S. Senators. President Bush said he could not rule out that Osama bin Laden is behind the scare. And for the first time in modern history, the United States Congress was shut down. Five people were killed, 22 infected, and the whole country filled with foreboding. If you take September 11th and the anthrax attacks on Congress, it was a one-two punch on our republic. And you have to remember the country was pretty jittery at the time, because it was right after 9-11. People just thought we were just under siege. And so, 
you know, it was, it was a perfect sort of storm that everyone was convinced that the world was out to get us, and then suddenly now we have anthrax. So it was a, a pretty good attack. If you think about it, the attack was against all of us, but it went into the mail system, so that means it had the potential for spores to be delivered into anybody's home. Fear of anthrax infected the American psyche and was crucial in justifying the war against Iraq. Less than a teaspoonful of dry anthrax in an envelope shut down the United States Senate. Iraq declared 8,500 liters of anthrax, and Saddam Hussein has not verifiably accounted for even one teaspoonful of this deadly material. We all remember the horror of the Twin Towers. But the anthrax attacks all but disappeared from public consciousness. But not from Cohen's mind. He was raised in Africa, where anthrax had been used against the black majority during Zimbabwe's War of Liberation. It had caused the largest anthrax epidemic in modern times. As the five victims of the U.S. anthrax attacks were being buried, it was certain this crime could never be understood without also understanding the larger story of bioweapons research. The FBI's investigation, one of the largest in its history and codenamed Amerithrax, stretched out across six continents. It appeared the FBI was looking for a lone killer, and they soon zeroed in on a person of interest, an Army biodefense scientist named Stephen Hatfield. I am not the anthrax killer. Charges were never laid. Yet Hatfield continued to be harassed by the FBI and hounded by the media. I object to an investigation characterized as this one has been by outrageous official statements, calculated leaks to the media, and causing a feeding frenzy operating to my great prejudice. Stephen Hatfield sued, and in June 2008, the U.S. Justice Department settled out of court paying Hatfield $5.8 million. The FBI's anthrax investigation appeared to be a cold case. And then, on August 1st, 2008, the FBI announced they had their man, another military scientist. There is finally a suspect in the anthrax attacks. He worked for the government's anthrax lab, and unfortunately, he's dead. Because we believed that based on the evidence we had collected, we could prove his guilt to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. His name was Dr. Bruce E. Ivins. Dr. Ivins dying Tuesday at Frederick Memorial Hospital in Maryland, reportedly after taking a massive dose of prescription Tylenol with codeine. His lawyer today asserting his client's innocent. With the only suspect now dead, the FBI's case would never have to be proven in court. As Bruce Ivins was being remembered, the FBI said it was closing the case. But some Army specialists, like biowarfare expert Richard Spurzel, were skeptical. He's dead. And they can close the case, and he can't defend himself. Nice and convenient. 
isn't it? If we read Sherlock Holmes or we read detective stories, you always say who benefits, who had a motive. The lone gunman theory fits the needs of the FBI. Some madmen had basically stolen a small quantity of this or mixed it in his own house or whatever. Uh, he sent out a few letters and he is dead, so we don't need a motive. From day one, journalist Edward J. Epstein had challenged the FBI's single culprit theory. And now, so did a target of the anthrax letters, Senator Patrick Leahy. I do not believe in any way, shape, or manner that he is the only person involved in this attack on Congress and the American people. I do not believe that at all. I believe there are others involved, either as accessories before or accessories after the fact. I believe there are others who can be charged with murder. The key to this case was the murder weapon, inhalation anthrax. Anthrax is a naturally occurring bacteria that causes an acute pneumonia-like disease. Bruce Ivins worked with anthrax in one of the world's most secret military labs, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick in Maryland. factory, germ factory. The U.S. biowarfare program was born here during World War II in response to fears about enemy germ weapon programs. It turned out that the Japanese actually deployed these weapons against the Chinese in Manchuria. After the war, Fort Detrick was ramped up as army scientists weaponized anthrax and other deadly organisms. The spores of weaponized anthrax are processed into a fine aerosolized powder, easily inhaled into the lungs, causing death in as little as three days. At the height of the Cold War, the U.S. and other major powers possessed enough biological weapons to wipe out the human race. Then the U.S. moved to stop the madness. The United States of America will renounce the use of any form of deadly biological weapons that either kill or incapacitate. President Nixon's decision paved the way for the destruction of the world's stockpiles of biological weapons. The 1972 Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention outlawed bioweapons. Only defensive programs using lethal germs to develop vaccines, like the one Bruce Ivins was working on at Fort Detrick, were allowed. Many experts agreed. The anthrax in the 2001 letter attacks was the most sophisticated they had ever seen. 
But some dispute how a single scientist working alone could refine this level of anthrax without support. Richard Spurzel, Fort Detrick's former deputy commander, was among them. I'm fully convinced, as are other experts, not alone by any chance, uh, that Dr. Ivans could not have done this with the equipment that he had. The material that was in the Dashon Leahy letter, according to FBI releases, was 1.5 to 3 microns in particle size. This was super sophisticated. To get 1.5 to 3 microns uh, mass median diameter is phenomenal. I contend that that kind of powder could not be made at Fort Detrick because they don't have the equipment necessary to get down to that particle size with that kind of refinement. The list of suspect labs expanded beyond the United States when early in their investigation, officials released a key piece of information. Can you tell us which strain it is, sir? And is it does, does the fact that these are a little bit... AIM strain. The AIM strain. AIM strain. And can you tell us... The AIM strain is an extremely deadly variety of anthrax developed by the U.S. military for its vaccine work. It emerged that the AIM strain had been shared with labs in other countries. So I began to look who had the means of and the availability of the Ames strain abroad, which labs, were there any labs that could have done this? You couldn't limit this to America and exclude every place else because it was available in England, in Canada, in many foreign countries. Stephen Dresch was asking similar questions. He had been a Republican legislator in Michigan, now dedicated to exposing what he called the bioweapons mafia and he was making an astounding claim that if anyone could provide a window into the anthrax letter attacks it was a leading scientist at Britain's top military lab Porton Down. Porton Down had received the AIM strain from Fort Detrick. The first time that I heard of Dr. David Kelly was soon after 9-11. The anthrax letters had just hit the US while public investigations seemed to sputter, I had begun to penetrate what I have come to call the International Bioweapons Mafia. If anyone knew the secrets of the International Bioweapons Mafia, it was David Kelly. Then, he too turned up dead, dead in the woods. David Kelly took a walk in the woods near his home, slit his wrist, and killed himself. Kelly had also been a top UN weapons inspector in Iraq. At the root of it all is whether Dr. David Kelly was the source of stories that the British government had exaggerated intelligence reports in order to draw the country more easily into war. Dresch was on his way to England to investigate David Kelly's death for himself, and Cohn decided to join him. Investigating the death of military microbiologist David Kelly 
was just the beginning of our journey with Private Eye Dresch. What might Kelly's death illuminate about the secret world of anthrax and its international connections? The Ministry of Defence moved with great speed this afternoon, confirming that there will be an inquiry led by one of Britain's most senior judges. Lord Hutton heard 74 witnesses in just 22 days, none of them under oath. Many considered Hutton's report clearing the British government of wrongdoing a whitewash. The official ruling of suicide was challenged by a group of medical experts who called for the reopening of a coroner's inquest. Dresch and Cohen flew to London the day it was scheduled to take place. Despite inconsistencies in the forensic evidence, the court, in less than 10 minutes, announced there would be no further investigation. I didn't believe one moment that he took his own life. Kelly, I mean, he would not take the type of knife he took if he was seriously going to commit suicide. It's the cover-up of the cover-up, and, and of course they get to the, the point they just can't, can't stop because he's opening the can of worms. We sought out John Skurr, Britain's leading vascular surgeon. Skurr questioned how Kelly could have died from a self-inflicted pocket knife wound. Cutting the wrist is usually something that's done by often young people, girls, some men. It's a sort of cry for help. It's not generally regarded as a reliable way of committing suicide. In this case, as I understand it, and it's only the information I've been given, the rest, it would have been necessary to use the knife really the wrong way round and go up. So it's, it's an unusual way of trying to cut your wrist to start with. Louise Holmes was the first to discover Kelly's body. Could you describe where the body was? Yeah, the body was against a, a tree um, with the head and the shoulders just slumped back a little bit on the tree. But you would not say he was lying on the ground? No, he was... Uh, my, the way that I described how he was was the way that I described it in court, with his head and his shoulders against the base of the tree and the rest of his body on the floor. The police report described the body as laying flat on the ground. Who might have moved Kelly and why? One British member of parliament concluded that the Hutton inquiry had been a cover-up. By that time, Dresch was dying of cancer, and Cohen was back in London on his own. I am convinced beyond reasonable doubt, more than that, in fact, that uh, David Kelly was murdered. Norman Baker, a long-standing member of the House of Commons, had spent a year investigating Kelly's death. There were no fingerprints on the knife which David Kelly allegedly used to kill himself. Um, which, to my mind, only reinforced my view that it was uh, extremely difficult to conclude that he had committed a suicide. Who may have wanted David Kelly dead, and why? Gordon Thomas, an author who writes about the world of secret intelligence, had met David Kelly a few months before his death. David Kelly was a major part of the biological warfare intelligence world. He knew more 
than perhaps anybody I know, and perhaps anybody anybody knew. And he was brilliant. That's why he was always consulted by other intelligence services. If they got into a, a mess, CIA, Canadian intelligence, they'd say, we better ask Dr. Kelly what he thinks. He had explored with two or three writers, of which I'm happy to include myself, the possibility he could write a book about his life. And I said to him at the time, you know, David, you signed the Official Secrets Act. He said, I know. And yes, I'll need somebody else to write it with the information I provide. I said, but you know, you won't get away with it, David. Intrigued by Thomas's account, Cohen decided to look into Kelly's place of work, Porton Down, the UK's secret biological and chemical weapons complex. Porton Down had received the aim strain from Fort Detrick in the 80s. Look at this. Prohibited. David Kelly had been head of microbiology at Porton Down. At the time of his death, Porton Down was the target of a major police investigation. Codenamed Operation Antler, it looked into deaths and injuries to British soldiers caused by secret experiments conducted between 1939 and 1989. Attorney Alan Kerr represented some of the victims. They were experiments, for example, putting men in gas chambers and subjecting them to sarin nerve gas, a chemical warfare weapon, uh, to mustard gas, to lewisite, to CS gas, which is used for riot control, um, and also including other substances, for example, the biological agent pyrexial. After a three-year investigation, the police had enough evidence to recommend the prosecution of eight cases against Porton Down scientists. But just days before Kelly's death in July 2003, the Crown Prosecutor dropped the case. The Operation Antler investigation wasn't referred to in the Hutton report. And yet, so you, you basically have 30 detectives who are investigating the goings-on at Porton Down in terms of criminal behaviour. You have Kelly's death and the two are never put together. It seems very odd. It seems like something dropping behind the filing cabinet, but... Human experiments at Porton Down are part of the untold story of the international effort to add biological weapons to the arsenal of war. Well, you had a collaboration which started off between Britain and Canada in 1940. That expanded, gradually bringing the Americans in. And that then became a division of labor. Research work, for instance, tended to happen in Britain. The idea of production would happen in the United States. Field testing of munitions would happen in Canada. This collaboration required America's military lab, Fort Detrick, to work closely with Porton Down. Fort Detrick scientist Frank Olson was a liaison between the two facilities. On November 28, 1953, Olson fell 13 stories from a New York City hotel room. Was his death part of a pattern of mysterious deaths of bioweapon scientists, including that of anthrax letter suspect Bruce Ivins, also of Fort Detrick? Did all three scientists know too much? 
If there is a common thread that ties together a series of untimely deaths of military microbiologists, it may begin with Fort Detrick scientist Frank Olson. His son Eric is convinced his father's plunge from a hotel window was neither accident nor suicide. He had knowledge about experiments on human subjects. He had knowledge about, you know, extreme interrogation methods leading to death of the subjects. If there was a scary point during the Cold War, that was it. Frank Olson was an anthrax delivery systems expert working for the CIA's Special Operations, a covert division at Fort Detrick. His son says Frank Olson wanted out. What's striking to me is you were bound to get situations during the Cold War where certain scientists, certain policymakers, certain administrators, certain military people knew what was going on and said, you know, we're not doing this. This is not what the United States should be doing. And the question is, what were you going to do with such people? You couldn't put them on. All right, welcome to the BioSci War. Today uh, is the TylerBloyer.com live stream on April 3rd, 2021. And we are doing research of a different color. And today we're going to be getting into a little bit of the different types of research and uh, different forms and names that these research uh, uh, realms fall under and how that uh, can be masked sometimes under a horse of a different color or uh, maybe it's called something else but at that point um, you know you're really researching as we've talked about many times offensive strategies in biological warfare and masking that as we heard uh, Eric Traub and Kurt Blum talking about in their Operation Paperclip interviews as far as being disguised in cancer research and a lot of the things that are talked about with vaccines or cancer research such as the National Cancer uh, Institute uh, at Fort Detrick and we'll go more into that today but that being more of an offensive uh, a cover for an offensive biological or what potentially definitely could be and maybe there could be some speculation there on my part uh, but today in the bio war we opened up with a clip of the uh, you saw in there again dr francis boyle and i was listening to a longer clip from the grand theft world podcast that we played last week in grand theft world podcast episode 21 um and then also in the bio war episode 8, and this would be basically episode 9 in the series, in episode 8 we also had a clip from Francis Boyle uh, talking about the smoking gun for COVID-19 being a biological weapon made in a lab. And I know that there's some people that are worried about saying that on certain platforms that, oh, if you say the lab a thing, then, you know, they're going to say, well, not, we're just covering the evidence here, and Francis Boyle is a well-known, uh, renowned scientist and biological warfare specialist, you could say, who we're relying on some of his opinion, obviously, um, and it's an expert opinion, it's a well-informed opinion, obviously, in his case. So we're not just saying, oh, everything Francis Boyle says is the case, but that documentary itself is called Anthrax War, 
dead silence and it's the untold story of 2001 u.s anthrax attacks and the dead scientist and the dark science of germ warfare research and in the bio sci war that fits in with both bio and sci war with that whole uh crisis you know of the pandemic or the anthrax attacks that were going on at the time of the same thing of uh, as the same t- same time as terrorist attacks and uh, September 11th of 2001. So it was really kind of in line with, you know, as you look into uh, September 11th being like a mask mind control operation, a, a worldwide uh, ritual that everyone participated in. And it's not something that was, you know, as was told, as we were told it was, I guess, let's say, or as history might tell it in you know, the more colloquial or, you know, more well and people that think that they're well-informed but really are just repeating the narrative of what they've been told about events have gone down. They really have not looked into it much. They don't do any research of any kind of real sort. They don't actually look into things themselves. They don't, you know, watch documentaries like Anthrax War and look into people like Francis Boyle and anyways. With that, we will probably play more of that into the show today. Uh, so we'll we'll be coming back to that, and we'll be talking about a few different topics today, and not necessarily talking about specifics around anthrax, but the point of that, in bringing that up, is to show a continuation of things that seem to link back more to the U.S. government and the U.S. Army and the U.S. military and their uh, offensive biological weapons research programs and then, you know, oh, it's this other country. Oh, it's Africa with AIDS that's causing it, even though most people that had AIDS and where AIDS was originating seem to be from the U.S. Or, oh, it's a Wuhan flu virus and it must be from the bats and people eating bats, even though, you know, we have these connections of the EcoHealth Alliance uh, and the Pentagon and uh, Fauci and the NIH and the NA- NIAID uh, funding the SARS-CoV-2 gain-of-function research uh, trying to combine chimera-like viruses, AIDS and Ebola and SARS-1 to make it more virulent and make it spreadable via uh, aerosolized or airborne pathogen. And you could see with anthrax, maybe the limitation was there that it was only really spreadable within the proximity of someone coming in contact with it, but with something that you could aerosolize and then have vaccines for and be able to protect your people let's say and expose uh, the targets with the deadly virus and then uh, roll out the solutions with these gene therapy technologies which is really starting to look more and more as we dig into this like uh, Nazi eugenics uh, underground third Reich (laughs) neo-Nazi infiltration of the medical system and the scientific community And this is really just a push for more of the same uh, depopulation and climate change, you know, saving the planet. We've all got to do the right thing uh, for each other and the collectivist justification that, well, I'll take the risk to get injured by the vaccine as long as it's the best thing to do for humanity as a whole. So we've got a few different angles here in the studio set up today. Uh, I've been working on getting things ready for further productions down the road and uh, some exciting news coming up over at tylerbloyer.com again what you can do is find the 
bio Cywar category page from the main page it's also from the menu item and follow along chronologically if that's how you'd like to go through the series you could go back to purpose and scope which was released on February 6th of 2021 and that was the beginning of the Biosci War. Again, we're in episode nine at the moment, and really, uh, and addendums to that or uh, pre-qualifications that you could go through would be the total psyop awareness and cyber pentagon episodes that we did before that, where I started to kind of formulate the idea of, well, you know, this seems like important research to get out there. I do have many sources that are in article form or in audio form or less known platforms that they're published out on. So it's not necessarily, you know, groundbreaking research that Tyler Bloyer is coming up with, but it's uh, rather it's um, research that I'm compiling and mixing more like a DJ and bringing together uh, in front of everybody to have a better understanding, a better tapestry uh, woven so that you can see the picture painted a little bit more clear. When it comes to the bio war, when it comes to the current ongoing plague and the COVID-19 pandemic. And so check that uh, documentary in the show notes, Anthrax War. We'll be playing a little bit of that into the record here a little bit more. And yeah, we're just today talking about the COVID-19. Uh, just to start out a little bit, again, talking about COVID-19 hoax and the freedom people and the truthers out there in the so-called community, even the so-called community that you could say that I would be a part of. Uh, we have uh, systemic issues even, you know, still with our own community with it when it comes to not being able to keep an open mind, you know, deciding that you've got it all figured out already, and then relaying that information downstream to others, such as like, you know, strictly just like making fun of people that are wearing masks or having strict issues with the mask issue and constantly, I mean, just like the people that don't wear masks and don't really think about it that much are sort of like children and just going along. So are people that are, you know, always constantly feeling like their work needs to be looking down upon other people for their decisions they're making in life and being rude about that and, and calling them sheeple and things. Now, it's not that I'm totally exempt from this behavior at all times. I get frustrated and uh, upset with the way people behave, too. And I'm disgusted, you know, since this current plague going on since 2020 uh, at the way people behaved. And I could uh, hear this uh, beginning of the uh, the clarion call, the negative clarion call of uh, the pandemic in late November 2019, uh, mid December, somewhere in there. And my first thoughts were not necessarily worried about what the virus was or if it was going to be harmful to my direct health. I was more concerned about how other people would be behaving and how people would react. And I think that that is still true. I think that people don't know enough and they haven't done the research that we're looking at here in the BioSci War, which is why we're doing the BioSci War and spending the time to produce this show and put this material into now, which is like 20, 25 hours of material, to, you know, ex exposing how, you know, there's been the gain of function research on these viruses and also that this is nothing new. This goes back a long ways. Today, we'll go back into more of the history of AIDS or the simian monkey virus 40 and the polio vaccination 
and uh, how that may connect into and I you know may connect into uh, the importation of information from uh, Unit 731 and the biological weapons research that was being done in the you know uh, World War II Holocaust that you may have not heard of and uh, the study on you know U.S. soldiers and Japanese soldiers or, and Chinese soldiers, I mean to say, and uh, maybe even Japanese civilians, I'd have to look more into the specifics. But basically, live people uh, research with biological weapons of all sorts, uh, Black Plague and uh, the Nazis and Eric Traub and his uh, interest in, and uh, Kurt Blom and Heinrich Himmler's interest in the, in the Black Death, the Black Plague, and how that could potentially have been part of their research and as their imported importation through Operation Paperclip into the United States uh, could also link into further developments of the AIDS virus, the HIV virus, or the AIDS disease, and also leading up into even uh, SARS-CoV-1, uh, the current ongoing pandemic of COVID-19. So there's a chain and a reason why we're kind of going back and back and back. And I'm just not reading current modern articles about the vaccine passports and, you know, how they're going to be, uh, you know, basically using like IBM Holocaust techniques with businesses and people to tag and track and trace. You know, that's all very interesting as well. But some we, we do want to get more into the root cause of all this and not way back to psychologically speaking, the root cause and from tylerbloyer.com perspective and my perspective, you know, freedom, truth, and prosperity are the issues that I'm defending here. And so really, it comes back to sovereign or self-ownership, uh, Swaraj. Swaraj being the Indian term for self-rulership, self-mastery. And uh, my freedom bent comes from more of a responsibility to the truth, to, to freedom, to health, and to prosperity that bring about the most freedom, not just doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And, and as long as it's voluntary and as long as, you know, and again, we've gone into and falling into the movement trap, some of the issues that I have with uh, the freedom movements. And it's not, again, that I don't want to, you know, be involved with people in the freedom movements or that I have issue with everybody and I just hate everybody and all the freedom. It's not like that either. I found it helpful to sort of play that um, d dualistic, uh, p you know, fiddle on that uh, rant that I went on for a year and a half or so about how the movement traps can really be a problem. It's similar to how I open up these episodes talking with the bio sidewalk talking about, you know, how I think it's problematic that people get up and say, oh, it's all bullshit, man, and you should just go out and do what you want to do, man, and I d can't we just, like, go out and drink and hang out, man, like, this is bullshit, we should be hugging, and, like, I'm not, I'm not pro um, inhibiting people's uh, movement, I am not pro medical apparatuses being forced on people, even if it's your establishment, and this is my place of business, man, so I can do what I want. Like, I'm not pro-restricting other people's choices and uh, forcing medical apparatus on them. I think that this is something in history that we can see can lead to very bad uh, results. However, at the same time, 
uh, I think it's important to then not just take the opposite side only because it's the opposite side and just claim, oh, well, there's nothing going on. And there's, you know, COVID-19 is a hoax. There's no such thing as a virus, man. Haven't you read Anthony Hoffman's work and like Andrew Kaufman or whatever? Not Anthony Hoffman. Andrew Kaufman's work and like, don't you know all about field theory and terrain theory, man? Like germ theory, bullshit, man. And like this total, just taking the op opposing side, when you really don't know anything about, you know, the potential use of biological weapons being aerosolized and sprayed and just saying, oh, it's not that nothing there, man. It's almost also like this psychological protection mechanism of, I don't really want to know. I don't really want to do the research. I'd rather not have to keep my mind uh, working on these things and going through all this. It's negative. It's dark. I don't want to think like that. So let me just cast it out in this manner where other people are casting it out in a manner of like going along. They're just going to get the vaccine. They're not going to look into how uh, vaccines could be actually just cancer research and viruses are actually causing cancer that come from vaccines being injected inside of people. And that's probably the most likely cause of cancer today. <laughs> that's not important to look into either, right? But so either side is, and again, so it's very difficult, I think, today uh, to just be able to take a step back, uh, start asking questions and then looking into the research and see where that leads you versus, you know, coming to a conclusion that you've got it all figured out. And so in light of that, that's also what we're taking the time to do here in the bio war, as well as, you know, when I get into conversations with people and I would, I say, well, you know, more and more, you know, if they say, oh, well, have you had COVID-19? And I, you know, we have to get into the whole PCR test and uh, how even the inventor of the PCR test says that it's not being used in the right way. And that at the cycles they're using it, you know, it's you get a cert to a certain amount of cycles and you can make any virus, which we have a lot of different uh, coronaviruses and other viruses inside of our bodies or even like AIDS or uh, um, herpes simplex virus or, you know, hep B, you could, you could amplify things to a point with a PCR test to be able to say that someone has any sort of virus, right? And there is a cycle threshold that matters. And, I, you know, if you look at what the way they've counted the numbers as well with people having comorbidities, so there, there is all these issues with the numbers and the facts. And so that's why, again, we have to be careful with how we determine what, what experts to trust. <laughs> and maybe the best thing to do is to just do more in-depth research yourself and keep, you know, digging into the information and some of the things that you may not be uh, aware of. So when the, the whole, they wouldn't do that, they would never do that. That's one of the the memes or the thought viruses that I'm sort of addressing with the bio war is the, well, they wouldn't do that crowd, right? The crowd that, well, well they would never, they would never do that. And that, that's a, another reason why, you know, they would all have to be in on it if they were going to, if that's true. So, you know, not, it's a naive way stance and not being able to see, uh, not being able to see more of the corrupt 
potentials where even financial corruption, where there could be financial incentives to not inform people about potential downsides of a product, right? Or uh, the incentive to power and becoming more powerful by obtaining information that other people don't have and then utilizing that as a tool to manipulate them to get more powerful. So beyond these things, just the financial incentives of a vaccine manufacturer to hide the potential downsides through skewing the data, right? That doesn't, that makes just saying, well, the mainstream science or the mainstream scientific community, we have to appeal to the experts. That makes those arguments basically nullified. Like they're, they're no longer valid arguments because of the potential for humanity to succumb to corruption, for human beings to succumb to corruption i mean this is like psychology 101 type stuff like it almost i was just thinking about what i was just explaining and i was thinking how ridiculous it is that i'm explaining that this has to go on but i've had this conversation with numerous people out in the field you could say and i come up against that argument continuously that like you've got to be completely delusional to think that there's any bigger higher picture things going on when it comes to vaccines when it comes to cancer when it comes to the coronavirus that anybody putting together puzzle pieces that this other person can't see is obviously just crazy and the way they get they respond to you to say that is they'd all have to be in on it they wouldn't do that and again this is naive this is foolish this is childish this is uh, psychological illness uh, happening when people come uh, respond this is just like pooping out of the mouth basically when people respond with these you know, childish ways of addressing um, solid research and years and hundreds and hundreds of hours of research in some cases on particular topics that we are weaving into the bio war. But in the field, like I said, in the at talking to your average basic dipshit out there, they will continuously throw out these ridiculous arguments. And so again, that's also why we, Tyler, I, why I sit here and do this on a Saturday afternoon rather than uh, a lot of other things that I could be doing and have and will continue to do this research in the form of tylerbloyer.com and the archives that I've created there. And that uh, will go down for as long as I draw breath as a place where I archive and post this stream of research and consciousness and information that I bring out on tylerbloyer.com. So I appreciate those that watch the show. And we're going to dive right in today because I think we've done a, enough of a intro monologue here um so today to get started we are going to read from the book unit 731 uh we read in this book back in the tylerbloyer.com episode commencement of hostilities bio war uh, that was episode two in the series of the bio war and in that we actually had dave amory uh, from for the record uh, spitfire.com spitfirelist.com read from for the record chapter 1171 the missing chapter part one and in that dave emery reads uh, from the unit 731 book only he reads from a chapter that is not in the american version and also is not in the version that I have a link to yet. I've been looking, I haven't spent like a long time looking, but I've been searching around for a copy of the book with the missing chapter. Today, we're gonna to be reading from a section of Unit 731 from my Calibre download 
that I'll be pulling up here in just a moment. Um, but yeah, you can reference back to this episode, which is going to be in the show notes, this uh, For the Record episode from David Emery. You could also watch the entire episode of the BioSci War where we had uh, a discussion about Unit 731. We did bring that up a little bit. And also you saw, if you noticed in the opening clip, they also referenced to it, but they didn't, I didn't hear them say Unit 731, but they did talk about the Japanese biological warfare information that may have been obtained. Now, I didn't mark that timestamp, but I think it was, you know, I'll go back and watch that and we'll, we'll dig into more of that documentary again coming up. So for now, again, jumping into Unit 731, Japanese Army's Secret of, uh, Secret of Secrets by David Wallace and Peter Williams. And this version is downloaded. I used uh, Libgen downloading it, and we're going to be reading it here from Calibre. And I set up a scene here that I need to switch to. There we go. Oh, wait, wrong scene. That's the... There we go. Okay. So, again, reading from Unit 731, we are going to jump to a section from Chapter 1, Formation, Expansion, and the End of Unit 731. And if I can't pronounce the name, we'll just power through it, and I will only apologize this once rather than continuously apologizing about slandering words that are either really medically long and I haven't read before out loud, or Japanese, and I also don't speak Japanese and may say their name incorrectly. From Unit 731 in the bio War. Reiju Kachizuka later held the office of Secretary of Surgeon of the Kwutong Army, Nishumera Iji, as head of the Unit 1855 in Beijing, Katawa, as Secretary of the Bacteriological Research, Unit 731. Want to be as Secretary of the 12th Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department, assistant of Shiro Ishii, had worked in the Medical Bureau of the Army's Ministry at Hatsuro Shirokawa and had been Secretary of the 29th Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification in the Battlefields. You'll often see, this is Tyler parenthetically speaking, that, again, masking the biological weapons uh, units in the military as epidemic prevention and water purification, right? The aim of the foundation, continuing on with the reading, the aim of the foundation of the Research Institute of Epidemic Prevention is recorded in 50 years of history of the School of the Army Surgeon. The Research Institute of Epidemic Prevention as the research institution related to the military operations and epidemic prevention in our nation as has recently been founded in the School of Army Surgeons in 1928. Colonel Shiru Ishu, Army Surgeon and researcher sent abroad, observed si social developments in various European countries, lamented that our nation was not equipped with similar facilities, which was a weakness in national security. After he came back from the observations in Europe and the U.S. in 1930, he reported to management about the weakness and suggested 
that related research should be conducted immediately. Later, Ishii consistently repeated experimental research during his leisure time as a lecturer at the school. With the support of lecturer Kazumi and approval from the management, a research laboratory headed by Shiru Ishii was set up inside the school as a fundamental research of epidemic prevention advancement in order to practically apply results in battlefields. Surgeon Ishii bravely stationed, oh sorry, switching back to the right screen here, uh, bravely stationed in Machuri, uh, Manchuri, even though difficulties existed, dedicated to the establishment of an epidemic prevention institute in order to apply the research results and fulfill requests of epidemic prevention from various teams of imperial military in Manchuria. A new epidemic prevention institute closely attached to the inner, isle, inner island, sorry, to the inner inland, the territory of Japan's home islands, was eventually founded in 1936. Certainly parallel to epidemic prevention research laboratories in the inner island, this institute was a core of epidemic prevention of the imperial military which was striving for the important mission of epidemic prevention warfare at the stationing area. On the 8th of December 1932, the Army Ministry approved a budget of 208,989 yen to expand the Research Institute of Epidemic Prevention School of Army Surgeons. I believe that was the sign for that currency, and I may just be completely incorrect about that to increase the number of laboratories, offices, and operating rooms, electrical substations and warehouses, to construct special rooms for breeding small animals, and to produce bacteria of cholera, typhoid fever, and meliodosis. The institute was able to expand just six months after founding, ref reflecting the acceptance of Shiro Ishii and his advocacy of biological warfare, by the Japanese military. As mentioned, quote, a new epidemic prevention institute closely attached to the inner inland was eventually founded in 1936, Ishii's Unit 731. Linked closely to the School of Army Surgeons, Unit 731 became a core of national epidemic prevention. It also assumed the responsibility of the, quote, the important mission of epidemic prevention and warfare, unquote. The upper level of the Japanese government also actively drove preparation of bacteriological warfare, which was considered a means of extremely military, of external military invasion. Reading that sentence again. The upper level of the Japanese government also actively drove preparation of bacteriological warfare, which was considered a means of external military invasion. Uh, continuing on with the reading from Unit 731 in Chapter 1 here.
I'm sorry. Uh, that was the muting of just now that occurred on the live stream was due to a technical error on of my own doing. Uh, reading, continuing on from the reading here of from Unit 731, uh, that muting just now in the live stream, folks, was just an issue on the technical side. So uh, I apologize for that. Continuing on uh, from Chapter 1. From Tokyo to Harbin, establishment of Kamo Unit. After Japan invaded Harbin, its influence spread over the entirety of northeastern China. In August 1933, Shiro Ishii secretly moved the Research Institute of Epidemic Prevention to Harbin, which is in the Nangang area of Shao Shua Street today. Am I... yeah. He also secretly set up a laboratory in Baihenni, Wuchang City, under the name Camo Unit, the former body of Unit 731. Ishu also established a Tokyo branch of Ishu Unit in the School of Army Surgeons where he held office. He commonly traveled between Tokyo and Harbin and conducted research and testing of bacteriological weapons with the colleagues as the Ro Roichi Niato of the Tokyo branch in both cities. Shiro Ishii was born in the Chiyoda village of Sanbu district in Chiba pre prefecture, which geographically belonged to the Kamo area. At the time, therefore, Unit 731 was named the Kamo Unit. Two sections were established under the Kamo Unit. The General Affairs and Research Section and Under Research were Minami Subsection and Kotsu Subsection. The Manami based at the general office of the Camo unit, did research on epidemic prevention and water purification, while the Kotsu conducted bacteriological experiments at Baihinyi, Wucheng City. Baihinyi was one of the stations along the Rafai Harbin Railway that became a small town after the railway was constructed. As it can be assessed by rail, accessed by rail, and was near Harbin City, the Camel Unit built an associated bacteriological factory here, which was disguised as a common barrel of Japanese military. The Camel Unit sent a captain named Chumu to manage the facilities at Bahini, and the state was also called the City of Chuma. The City of Chuma was highly secured behind the walls more than three meters tall, surrounded by moats, sentries, and corners with a high voltage electrical net around the wall okay so again you know there were highlights in that section of sort of disguising the research itself and how J J japan had created uh the unit 731 uh here we have a quick section that i've skipped down to a few pages down called did the emperor know in order to heighten secrecy and enlarge the bacteriological factory shiru isi suggested the imperial japanese army general staff officer transfer the teams related to the bacteriological research in 1936 according to quote the case of the former japanese army preparing utilizing bacteriological weapons judgment materials unquote Riju Kachusaka, secretary of the Kuteng Army, just testified when he was standing trial in Karbovsk. Unit 731, this is a quote from that gentleman, uh, and with his uh, confession, Unit 731 was founded based on the secret order of the Emperor Hirohito in 1936, which was originally decided to station in Harbin and headed by the uh, Colonel Shiruishi, the Army Surgeon 
appointed to the Ministry of the Army. When I took office as the Secretary General of Affairs in, of Unit 731, I had personally read this order from the archives. And the end of that quote from that gentleman. It is widely understood that Emperor Hiro, uh, Hirohito approved the founding of Unit 731. In February of 2015, we received a copy of Japanese record mentioning in a document of the Imperial Japanese Army General Staff Office, quote, the document related to the approval of staff of the school army of the surgeon to work part-time as staff of the Epidemic Prevention Department of the Kutang Army, unquote, that Prince Kane in Kotuhito, chief of the Imperial Japanese Army General Staff, gave Tarachi Hisachi of the Ministry of, of Army, as well as Number 41, Section B of Army Order in September of 1936. The order stated, quote, I order to formulate and implement a proposal about the staff of the School of the Army Surgeons working surgeons working part-time as staff of the Epidemic Prevention Department of the Ku Tang Army. At the end of the approval of the Japanese Emperor, the Chief of Staff of the Ministry of Armies of Staff at the School of the Army Surgeons could work part-time as staff of the Epidemic Prevention Department of the Ku Tang Army. So again, this is just going into the formation and creation of the Unit 731. It's interesting to know more about the uh, history of it and the uh, the disguising it in an epidemic prevention and water purification department. Uh, let's talk. Let's read a little bit of this section here, titled just the same. The Ishii unit formally decreed the use of the name Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kutung Army in 19, and in 1941, the Ishii unit and other divisions were generally called Unit 759 in Manchuria, the head office of Pingfeng, Unit 731 in Manchuria, the Madunjeng Detachment, Unit 743 in Manchuria, the Sun Wu Detachment, and Unit 763 in Manchuria, the Lanku Detachment, Unit 162 in Manchuria, the Hailar Detachment, and Unit 543 in Manchuria, and the Dalian Research Institute of Health, Unit 319 in Manchuria. The Vast Organizational Structure The organizational of Unit the organization of Unit 731 was huge and consisted of a large number of personnel serving eight departments, general affairs, bacteriological experiments, bacteriological research, epidemic prevention and water purification, and bacteria production, training and education, equipment supply, and therapy. Apart from these eight departments, there was a special section responsible for the prison management. Divisions were set up under each department, sections were created under each division, and each section was named after the person in charge. Um, so yeah, that's um, enough from chapter one. We're going to skip down now to chapter five, and the chapter five is titled Bacteriological Warfare from Unit 731. Uh, the Laboratories of the Devil of Auschwitz of the East, uh, the book that we're reading here from. Um, give me a moment.
Peter Lewis Williams. Okay, I was just doing a little reference here. Uh, on the original book that I had pulled up from 1743 in the Amazon, uh, it, before we started reading this, may have been not the right reference, so I'll double-check that at the end of this episode. Still, nonetheless, this uh, reading that we're reading from here in the book that I've downloaded here from Calibre on Unit 731 is interesting, and we're going to continue on with the reading. I just wanted to see on that reference, and I'll, I will follow up on that as we do with TylerBloyer.com episodes. We will do a corrections next week and clarify and I'll do more digging into that uh, Peter Williams and David Wallace version of Unit 731 with the missing chapter that we had uh, linked from an episode of For the Record by David Emery. But reading on here uh, from this version and uh, this particular book is a copy that I will be able to pull up here and show you on the screen here in a sec. Let's just take a break while we're already in. We're already outside of the reading for a moment. Let me... Pull open the actual archive. I'm just uh, doing it live here, actually. Appreciate uh, everybody watching the show live and bearing with me as I dig into this. So this is from Yan Jun Yang and Yi Him. Um, this was a book that if you look in the Calibre reader, uh, you can see the information on that book here and the title card that we had uh, on the screen as well that you can see. Oh, you're not seeing. Sorry, folks, here we go. So again, there, there's that uh, book. And then if I pull open the cover is what I'm trying to do. You can see that there's some information about it here. So, Yun 731, Laboratory of the Devil, Auschwitz of the East, Japanese Biological Warfare in China from 1933 to 45, from Ying Yan Jun and Tam Yu Him. Uh, this is the correct, uh, the correct att attribution. And so, I will get that updated in the show notes from the book that we're reading from here. This is a, a different book than the book that I brought up earlier, just to clarify that so that there's no confusion. Um, I realize that sometimes I realize things while doing it live and reading it live. So when you go back to the actual book on Amazon, this is from uh, David Wallace and Peter Williams, which is a different book, obviously, than the one we're reading from. So that's okay. We didn't read from this book, and we still have the reading from Dave Emery uh, from For the Record 1171, and we have that in this chapter here. So really, we're just adding additional context in the reading here from Unit 731 in the book. So now we can get back to Chapter 5 on bacteriological warfare. And again, we'll come back and clarify if there's any corrections that need to be made in the next episode. If we can just press the right button here, we'll be right on top of it. Unit 731 planned a skillfully designed and fully equipped base with all the necessary facilities in Pingfang area in Harbin. The base was built to prepare for bacteriological warfare, and the unit prepared and launched a series of outdoor field experiments on bacterial bombs, bacterial vaccines, and bacterial 
logical war strategy. At the same time, the Japanese imported a large number of rats, mice, and rabbits as experimental objects used to spread bacteria along with insects such as fleas, lice, flies, and mosquitoes. These living creatures were infected with more than 50 kinds of bacteria, including plague, typhoid fever, anthrax, glanders, and tuberculosis for research on bacteriological warfare. Since the Battle of Nomonhan in 1939, Unit 731 and all other similar units in Japan intensified their efforts to carry out research and planning for bacteriological warfare on behalf of Imperial Japan. The quantities of biochemical weapons and bacterial vaccines that were produced in Unit 731 alone would be sufficient to infect and eliminate the entire global population. According to the current data at hand, Unit 731 and other units had indeed conducted large-scale bacteriological warfare in the vast expense of land in China, ranging from Halunbir of Inner Mongolia, Chengchun in the Jilin, in the Jilin province, and Nang'an and west of Shandong Peninsula to Upper Zhengzhi and Gungfeng, Nanjing, Hanzhou, Nibao, Kizhou, Jinhao, Yiwu, Yinhe, Yingshan, Longyu, Lishu, Kanji, and Chengjed, and west of Yanan. And I'll just say that that was not easy to plow through all those words that I probably mispronounced them all. <laughs> all these communities suffered from widespread plague, cholera, and typhoid fever, resulting in a high death rate. Japanese bacteriological warfare brought disaster to the Chinese population along with huge violations of the ecosystem as well as human societies. Although the war ended a long time ago, the harm and disaster remain. Due to the high secrecy, members of Unit 731 and related units were able to evade the Tokyo trials with the cooperation of the U.S. former members of the unit chose non to reveal, not to reveal the truth making the investigation process an extremely complicated task. In recent years, the U.S. has begun to declassify materials related to Japanese bacteriological warfare that allows researchers to further avenues of investigation. And a section, Research, Experimentation, and Choice of Bacteriological Weapons and Bacterial Vaccines. Inglis Report by Thomas B. Ingalls, or Inglis, Thompsonson's Report, by Arvo D. Phyllis, by uh, Nobert Fell, and Hill's report by Edwin V. Hill recorded the details of bacteriological warfare and bacterial vaccines invented or developed by Unit 731. Bacteria bombs from 1970. Sorry, this is another section called Bacteria Bombs. From 1937 to 1942, Unit 731 invented at least 1,707 bacteria bombs, including Model I, Model RO, Model U, Model GA, and older Model UJI, Model UJI-150, Model JUI-100, and I'll just skip ahead in the essence of not reading all the models. Of the 10 types of bacterial bombs, UJ-150 was the most frequently produced. The UJ-150, also known as the model UJI, was built in a ceramic shell in Ishii style, Shiro Ishii, leader of the Unit 731. Like the Ishii style filter, the UJ-150 was invented 
and produced by Shiro Ishii. From 1940 to 1943, 500 Ishii-style ceramic bombs were produced. The quantity of fragments of the UJ-150 bombs were found in the Unit 731 ruins, as well as the scale of the former factory, a five-story building with two uh, kilns and four chimneys located in Wanggang Village, Nangang Harbin, indicate huge-scale productions. The chief aim of Unit 731 was to produce bombs with great lethality and destructive power that were easy to carry. From 1937 to 1942, at least 10 kinds were tested. Information such as type of bomb, types of bacteria, liquid attack results, and production budgets were widely studied. So, I would just say that, this is me speaking now, that you know, it's not hard to say how if they were putting that much effort into producing bombs, which could be, you know, spread bacteriological warfare weapons, that they would also then be thinking how they could make that aerosolized, how they could then, you know, just be spraying that rather than having to drop a bomb of some sort. And that would be like the next logical conclusion of that sort of a, a study, right? If you were trying to produce the most effective uh, type of bomb and now you could watch if you're watching the video version of this podcast me just scrolling through this and they're talking about the different types of bacteriological warfare and um, we are going to skip down now though to a section I have picked aside here from unit 731 investigation cover-up and exchanges from part six of our reading here today from this book, Unit 731, The Laboratory of the Devil, Devil, Auschwitz of the East. Let me just take a sip. With the surrender of Japan announced by the Emperor Hirohito, Hirohito, the secondary world the secondary <laughs> sorry, the Second World War came to an official end on the fifteenth of August in nineteen forty five. Checking something on the tech here. Uh, U.S. President Harry S. Truman appointed General Douglas MacArthur as Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, and MacArthur accepted the surrender of Emperor, Emperor Hirohito aboard the USS, the USS Mi uh, Missouri. Depen during the period before the start of the Cold War, and the spread of communist ideology in order to control post-war Japan under the U.S.'s choice of ideological and political systems, the U.S. took the lead in the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, also known as the Tokyo Trials, slated to try Japanese war criminals. Beginning in September of 1945, the U.S. Army initiated investigations into Japanese biological warfare. The investigation ended in November of 1948. Over four years, the U.S. Army successfully enacted a secret agreement with the Japanese government allowing members of Unit 731 to avoid trial. And we read about that earlier, again, this is Tyler parenthetically, about the U.S. participating in cover-up of the research and the individuals being that would be held accountable for, you know, bacteriological warfare on live human experiments such as probably what would normally be done in a war trial. But as we see with like the Nuremberg trials, that these are really just, uh, you know, fronts for covering up such war crimes. Uh, reading, continuing on. At the end of the Second 
War, members of Unit 731, including Shiru Ushu and Mazuji Katino, returned to their to Japan, where many of them lived secretly, changed their names, or faked their deaths to escape trial. The U.S. Army sought statistics and data on Japanese biological warfare and experiments carried out by Unit 731. Therefore, prior to the Tokyo trials, the U.S. intelligence agency investigated Ishu, Katino, and other members of the unit. At least 25 members were tried by the U.S. Army. However, Ishii and others were exempted from trial. Tracking Shiru Ishii, a section here. The U.S. intelligence agency paid primary attention to the founder of Unit 731, Shiru Ishii, rating him the most wanted person by the U.S. authorities. The second division of the general staff headquarters in Tokyo had assigned intelligence agents to track him down for a long time. The fraudulent death of Shiru Ishii. Three months, after, three months before the Tokyo trials, Ishii faked his death to evade trial, but 20 days later, the U.S. intelligence agency uncovered his deception according to the information collected by the intelligence agency. So he tried to pull a Hitler, basically, <laughs> um, and fake his death, which, uh, you know, that's maybe a little speculation on my part, but it's highly likely that there was a lot of other people, you know, maybe high-ranking officers in the SS or Hitler himself, who pulled this same maneuver, faking uh, their death, in order to avoid their war crimes, right? So, uh, quoting here, on December 3rd, 1945, an former of the U.S. Army reported that Shiryushi had arranged a fake funeral for himself at his hometown in Chayota Village at San Bugen, Chiba, on November 10, 1945. He, however, remained hidden with the health of head villagers. Shiryu Ishii was the lieutenant general of head Ishii's division and was in charge of human experiments during the war. Unquote. More information on Ishii was contained in the U.S. Army memo dated 3rd of December, and here's from that uh, Army memo. The Biological Warfare Division was established in Harbin under the commander of Shiru Ishii. Under the command of Shiru Ishii. In December 1944, a large-scale bacterial laboratory was successfully cultured uh, Yersinia pastis in Harbin. This bacteria was released throughout Manchuria. In Shenyang, in Shenyang, some U.S. POWs were injected with Yersini pestis. In order to observe the experiment results, the bio now again, let's just uh, do it live. What's that particular bacteria more mainstreamly known as? And uh, let's take a look and just do a quick uh, search. I'm reading about it here. And I just want to make sure that we're not missing something important about that particular bacteria. So here from the Wikipedia is a uh, rod shaped without spores. It facilitated the anaerobic organism that can infect humans. It causes the disease plague, which takes three many forms. The pneumonic plague, the septemic and bubonic. So they're studying plague. Um, that helps to clarify that and injecting it into people, um, injecting that into live people. In order to observe the experiment results, the Biological Warfare Division released infected mice in Shenyang and other areas to create large-scale plague. After these experiments, Shiru Ishii noted that the need to culture Yersinia pestis for use in warfare. When Japan... So Ishii 
and uh, Heinrich Himmler and Traub and Blom all seem to have the same fascination with plague and uh, hybridizing, gain of functioning, aerosolizing uh, plague virus. That's interesting. Shiryushi noted that the need to culture Yersinia pestis for the use in warfare. When Japan was defeated, the Japanese army destroyed laboratories as well as the abundant important information facilities and hundreds of, quote, marutas, unquote, and that's prisoners. Ishii's biological warfare division had cooperated with the Department of Medicine in the University of Tokyo. And that's the end of that excerpt from that document. The U.S. Army's documented Ishii's activities, especially his involvement in the Harbin Laboratory, human experimentation, and biological warfare, as well as his collaboration with the University of Tokyo. This information had reached the core of Unit 731, human, experimenta human experimentation and biological warfare. Information from the Intelligence Agency, Discovery of Shiru Ishii, this section here. A U.S. Army, recorded, uh, U.S. Army record dated the 28th of December 1945 states, Shiru Ishii left Harbin with about one million in cash. Shiru Ishii was suspected by the intelligence, intelligence Agency for not being arrested as a war criminal. Another U.S. Army record dated the 7th of January 1946 states, according to the co comment from the United States Department of Defense made on January 6, 1946, Shiru Ishii committed biological experiments in Manchuria and should be arrested and interrogated. The record from the Secret Intelligence Service and Military could not reveal the location of Shiru Ishii and it did not request the Japanese government to arrest Shiru Ishii for the U.S. Army. That's the end of that section. On the 7th of January 1946, members of the U.S. Intelligence Agency reviewed Ralph Tietzorth's and S.E. Whitesides of the United Forces Association in the Tokyo Broadcasting Building. Tietzorth provided information on, Shiru, quote, Shiru Ishii's involvement in plague injections of American and Chinese POWs, unquote, and Whitesides presented proof of Ishii's involvement in biological warfare and Unit 731's bacteria division. Neither man knew Ishii's location. Four days after the release of Teeth Source information on 11th of January, he interrogated the second in command of Unit 731, Masaji Kitono, who, prov who provided further information about biological experiments and bacteria bombs. The U.S. intelligence agency put great effort into tracing Shiru Ishii in order to collect details on human experimentation, which made Ishii the man most wanted by the agency. On the 8th of January 1946, as informants provided clues about Shiru Ishii's location, quote, Shiru Ishii went to the Kanazawa area. Professor Tochi, Tochio Ishikawa from the Department of Pathology in Kanazawa University knew Ishii's location, unquote. The following day, so they track him down, all right, and the appearance, so they find him, investigation. Let's see if we can find what happens in the trial. Okay, I'm just skipping ahead to see if we can get the outcome of the trial without 
losing the audience or losing, I sh you know, I didn't have time to mark that part, but we already learned earlier that he was not convicted of these war crimes and released. So it would be interesting to hear the details about that. Statements to do, do. Thank you guys for listening to the BioSci War today. And we are going to probably conclude our reading here in a second of this Unit 731 book on biological warfare done by the Japanese military and the importation of that information into the United States, uh, our own biological weapons research programs at Fort Detrick uh, and later at Dugway in Utah. Uh, that's coincidentally, I grew up an hour or so away from the Dugway Proving Grounds, the Army uh, Biological Weapons Research Facility out in Salt Lake City. And, you know, there's linkage in between uh, what we're reading in the beginning there of Unit 731. They're in Japan after the war, after the first war, realizing that they were lacking in their departments of biological warfare. And every of the five eyes or the major countries or the major powers of the world then and now would be realizing the same thing about their enemy and always saying, well, you know, the enemy could be doing this particular type of research, so we better be doing this particular type of research. And then whenever there's a bioweapon created, there's also the vaccines that are researched and created, the antidotes or the trying to stimulate the body to have a, a response to the virus. And whether you call that research on that side uh, vaccine research or you call it on the other side cancer research, something that actually causes cancer in other people or a, a biological weapon that could incapacitate other uh, people, such as like a SARS-CoV-2 uh, bioweapon, which more and more the research does tend to point to. And I would agree, you know, with Francis Boyle, who we had featured on the last episode of Grand Theft World and the last uh, episode of the BioSci War. And we've covered uh, one of his documentaries that he helped produce in the beginning here. And we will be um, getting a hold of more of his work and, and bringing that out into the show, that the evidence seems to lean towards uh, the current plague being a, you know, active, offensive, developed gain of function being like kind of the um, key indicator there that it's an offensive research program when you're gain of functioning viruses to make them more deadly, to make them more viral, to make them more aerosolized. These are not necessarily strictly offensive or sorry, defensive. You couldn't just claim that if you're the one funding the gain of function research um, because nature uh, doesn't just n naturally have uh, these animal viruses that jump into us and become super contagious. It's not that there aren't diseases or bacteria that come from animals that spread to humans that aren't deadly or aren't bad for us. But the fact of it being so widespread and so quickly and such at a pandemic level, and then we find all the evidence pointing back to, you know, the U.S. military at Fort Detrick and uh, after the importation and after World War II, after the importation of the knowledge from Japan's Unit 731 and Operation Paperclip with the uh, German Nazis, scientists being brought in, um, then that just being a really continuation into the you know five viruses of the apocalypse. We look at the uh, HIV epidemic in the 80s and uh, the spread of that being mainly in the United States and not necessarily in Africa or where it's claimed to have come from. And we're going to go into later today in this episode 
more of the details and some of the unique sim uh, functions or the unique attributes of the AIDS virus um, and how there's definitely some things and attributes there that also point to that being very coincidental if it weren't a, you know, genetic or a uh, laboratory engineered, a man created uh, biological weapon. So uh, as we go deeper down into the rabbit hole here today, appreciate those watching here as we go through the bio sci war. So we just got done reading from unit 731. Uh, we're going to quickly dive into, finally, if I can get the right buttons pressed. It's always a task because I've been moving things around. We're going to go to <laughs> two, Lab 257, a book about Plum Island, the disturbing story of the government's secret Plum Island germ laboratory. And we're just going to read a few pages here that we have touched on already in the bio-sci war, but just again linking interestingly enough back to the cancer research uh, cover and really how the offensive biological weapons um, research can is masked and has been masked in by the uh, at least by the Nazis and as we just read there by unit 731 it, with their, you know, water purification facilities, you know, really kind of being in mixed in with biological weapons uh, research. And also how the Fort Detrick Laboratory uh, has a National Cancer Institute, right? A government uh, funded and created entity for researching cancer right there in the biological weapons research facility of uh, there in Maryland. So... Reading here from page seven, or sorry, page six of lab 257, and the section says Project Paperclip meets Plum Island. Here with a quote from FDR I do not believe, let me grab my pointing pen. I do not believe that we offer any guarantees to protection in the post. Uh, hostilities prior period to the Germans. Among them may be that some who should properly be tried for war crimes or at least arrested arrested for active participation in Nazi activities. And that was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1944. To the victor belong the spoils of the enemy. That was U.S. Senator William L. Marcy in 1832. Dr. C. A. Mitchell began his remarks at the 1957 Plum Island Dedication Day by reminiscing on the late World War. I often think and almost tremble at what could have taken place had our Teutonic enemies been removed alive to this, or sorry, been more alive to this. It is said that some of their scientists pointed out the advantages to being the advantages to being obtained from an artificial sowing of disease agent that attacks domestic animals. Fortunately, blunders existed in the Teutonic camp as in our own. Consequently, this means the attack was looked up as a scientific poppy dream. If as much time and money were invested in biological agent dispersion as in one bomber plane, the free world would have almost certainly gone down to defeat.
And that's uh, the end of that from C.A. Mitchell. And uh, we continue on here. The audience murmured in acknowledgement, but one dedication day VIP stirred uncomfortably. The Let me straighten this out a little here. Uh, the director of the new virus laboratory in Tübingen, West Germany, personally invited by Plum Island director Maurice S. Doc Scheihan. The mind of the brown-haired man with the scar on his face and upper lip held a dark secret. He sat there perspiring, staring at Dr. Mitchell through his gray-brown eyes, wondering how many people knew his past. For he, Dr. Eric Traub, was the Teutonic enemy. Strangely enough, he had every right to be there. He was one of Plum Island's founding fathers. Nearing the end of World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union raced to recruit German scientists for post-war purposes. Under a top-secret program coded named Project Paperclip, the U.S. military pursued Nazi scientific uh, talent like, quote, the forbidden fruit, unquote, bringing them to America under employment contracts and offering them full U.S. citizenship. The recruits were supposed to be nominal participants in Nazi activities, but the zealous military recruited more than 2,000 scientists, many of whom had a dark Nazi party past. American scientists viewed the Germans as peers and quickly forgot that they were on the opposite sides of a ghastly global war in which millions perished. Fearing brutal retaliation from the Soviets for the Nazis' uh, vicious treatment of them, some scientists cooperated with the Americans to earn amnesty. Others played the two nations off each other to get the best financial deal in exchange for their services. Dr. Eric Traub had troubling uh, sorry, was troubling on the Soviet side uh, of the Iron Curtain after the war and ordered to research germ warfare viruses for the Russians. He pulled off a daring escape with his family to West Berlin in 1949, applying for Project Paperclip employment. Traub affirmed he wanted to do, quote, scientific work in the USA and become an American citizen and be protected from Russian reprisals, unquote. As lab chief of the incel reams, and that's basically the Chinese, or sorry, the uh, Nazi biological Fort Detrick Biological Weapons Research Agency, or the uh, Port McDowell, or uh, what, what was the, Port, Porton Down uh, was the British version of that. Porton Down, is something that uh, came up there in the Anthrax War documentary. And uh, here we're, we're learning about Incel Reims, which is the German version. I wouldn't say they're all exactly the same or something like that. I'm just pointing out the parallels. As lab chief of Incel Reims, a secret Nazi biological warfare laboratory on a crescent-shaped island nestled in the Baltic Sea, at least they put these uh, places on islands a lot, it seems like, huh? They, they're thinking ahead a little. Uh, direct directly for Adolf Hitler's second in charge, SS Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler, on, and we've talked about Heinrich Himmler here today a little bit and his obsession with the Black Plague, as we were just learning about there with uh, the plague and 
the Japanese research on the plague virus. He packaged weaponized foot and mouth disease virus, which was dispersed from the Lutwaffe bomber into cattle and reindeer in the occupied Russia. At Himmler's request, Traub personally journeyed to the Black Sea coast of Turkey. There, amid the lush Anatolian terrain, he searched for a lethal strain of Rindenpest virus for use against the Allies. Earlier in the war, he had been captain of the German army, working as an expert in infectious animal disease, particularly in horses. His veterinarian corps led the germ warfare attack on horses in the United States and Romania in World War I with bacteria called glanders. He was also a member of the NSKK, the Nazi Motorist Corps, a powerful Nazi organization that ranked directly behind the SA, the stormtroopers, and the SS, the elite corps. In fact, the NSKK, first uh, member joining in April 1930, was Adolf Hitler himself. Traub also listed his 1930 membership in America Deutscher Volksbund, a German-American, quote, club, unquote, also known as Camp Siegfried, just 30 miles west of Plum Island in Yapang, Long Island. Camp Siegfried was the national headquarters of the American Nazi movement. Over 40,000 people throughout the New York region arrived by trains, bus, and car to participate in the Nuremberg-like rallies. Each weekend, they marched in lockstep divisions carrying swastika flags, burning the burning uh, Jewish-U.S. congressmen in effigy, and singing anti-Semitic songs. Above all, they solemnly pledged their allegiance to Hitler and the Third Reich. Ironically, Traub spent the pre-war period of his scientific career on a fellowship at the Rockefeller Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, perfecting his skills in viruses and bacteria under the tutelage of American experts before returning to Nazi Germany on the eve of the war. Despite Traub's troubling war record, the U.S. Navy recruited him for scientific design and stationed him at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bellista, Maryland. Just months into his paperclip contract, the germ warrior at Fort Detrick, the Army's Biological Warfare Headquarters in Frederick, Maryland, and the CIA operatives invited Traub in for a talk and later reported in a declassified top Uh, secret summary. Traub and Dr. Traub, and this is an excerpt from that. Dr. Traub is a noted authority on viruses and diseases in Germany and Europe. The interrogation revealed much information of value to the animal disease program from biological warfare's point of view. Dr. Traub discussed work done in German animal disease uh, stations during World War II and subsequent to World to the War when the station was under Russian control. End of that expert. Traub detailed Traub's detailed explanation of the secret operation on Enzel Reims and his activities there during the war for the Soviets laid the groundwork for Fort Detrick's offshore germ warfare animal disease lab on Plum Island. Traub was the founding father. So Traub, you know, they're saying is he was trained in America at the Rockefeller Institute, if you didn't catch that, and then went to Germany, developed further biological weapons that, you know, it were involved in live human experimentation and 
basically like their own gain of functioning of these viruses and learning how they could kill people uh, more, effecti more effectively, more secretly, more nefariously. Um, so let's read on here. Little is publicly available about his clandestine activities for the U.S. military. The names of the two studies, quote, experiments with chick embryos adapted foot and mouth disease, unquote, and, quote, studies on the in vitro multiplication of Newcastle disease virus in chicken blood, unquote, were made available under the Freedom of Information Act, but the research reports themselves, parenthetically, and many others, were withheld. With this, quote, laboratory assistant, unquote, Annie Berger, who came over in 1951, Traub experimented, uh, experimented on over 40 lethal viruses on a large test animals. Traub also spent time at the USDA laboratories in Beltsville, Maryland, where he isolated new weapons-grade virus strains in the USDA lab, studying a, viru a virulent strain of a new virus that caused human infections. Traub showed how it adapted, quote, neurotropically, unquote, in humans by verocaciously attacking nerves and brain tissues. This was the same potent virus that infected a human in a Plum Island's first ever germ experiment one year later. In 1953, West Germany recognized a need for its own incel reams and built a high containment virus facility in Tübingen. They asked Dr. Eric Traub to return to the fatherland and assume command. So back to Germany he goes. 19, in, by 1953, West Germany recognized... Oh, sorry, I already read that. But there was a catch, quote, in the view of Dr. Traub's eminence as an international authority and a recognizable military potentials in the possible application of his specialty. It is recommended that the future surveillance of appropriate measures be maintained after the specialist's return to Germany, unquote. In other words, the CIA would be tailing him for years as soon as the lab opened for business. He turned to Plum Island, oh, sorry, he turned to Plum Island for a starter strains of viruses, which were gladly shipped over. USDA officials traveled to West Germany and visited his laboratories often. So they're allowing him to take some of his research back to Germany, who we just got done having a world war with. <laughs> and giving them back the research to continue on. Eric Traub and Plum Island. Everybody seemingly... Uh, so now we're going to go back to uh, Eric Traub and the Plum Island story and touch on here, wrap up, and we'll wrap up this reading from uh, Lab 257, the disturbing story of the government's Plum Island germ laboratory, a section which we've actually covered here earlier on in the BioSci War, but we're retouching on it here again today as it themes in with the topics that we've been discussing today. So everybody s seemed willing to forget about Eric Traub's dirty past, that he had played a crucial war in the Nazis' cancer research program, the cover name for their biological warfare program, and that he worked directly under the SS Ruchenfuhrer Heinrich Himmler. They seemed willing to overlook that Traub in the 1930s 
faithfully attended Camp Siegfried. In fact, the USDA liked him so much, it glossed over his dubious past and offered him a top scientist job at the new Plum Island Laboratory. Not once, but twice. Just months after 1952 public hearings selecting Plum Island, Dr. Shahan dialed Dr. Traub at the Naval Laboratory to discuss plans for establishing the germ laboratory and uh, positioned on Plum Island. So just reading that p first sentence again from that section about the cancer research program, which we're also reading about from Kurt Blom's, uh, uh, what he had said in his interview, similar uh, like kind of Operation Paperclip onboarding discussions, talking about how Germany would mask their biological weapons programs in cancer research. It says, everybody seemed willing to forget about Eric Traub's dirty past, that he had played a crucial role in the Nazis' quote, cancer research program, unquote, the cover name for their biological warfare program, and that he had worked directly under SS Reichenfuhrer Heinrich Himmler, I guess Reichenfuhrer, Reich, Reichenfuhrer, Reichenfuhrer, I need to say with German accent like Klaus Schwab and it sounds much better that way. <clears throat> the letters supporting Traub to lead, oh sorry, let's read this. Six years later and only two years after Traub squirmed in his seat at the Plum Island dedication ceremonies, senior scientist Dr. Jacob Trom retired. The USDA needed someone of, quote, outstanding caliber with a long-established reputation internationally as well as nationally, unquote, to fill Dr. Trom's shoes. But somehow it couldn't find a suitable American, quote, as a last resort, it is now proposed that the f foreigner be employed, unquote. These Aggies choice, Eric Traub who was in their view, quote, the most desirable candidate from any source, unquote. In 1958, secret USDA memorandum, quote, justification for the employment of Dr. Eric Traub, unquote, conveniently omitted his World War II activities, but it did emphasize that, quote, his originality, scientific abilities, and general competence as an investigator, unquote, were developed at the Rockefeller Institute in New Jersey in 1930. So again, American ties into um, Nazi uh, research and their the information, their capabilities tying into the Rockefellers, tying into American institutes that then have uh, provided information to the Nazis to be able to carry out their war crimes uh, is there any reason why any of that might have a motivation to be covered up? Um, so just uh, skipping ahead just a bit, and we'll, we'll end on this section here. A biological warfare mercenary who worked under the th three flags, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, and the United States, Traub was never investigated for war crimes. He escaped any inquiry into his wartime past. The full extent of his sordid endeavors went with him to his grave. While America brought a handful of Nazis' war criminals to justice, war, uh, they brought them to justice, it safeguarded many others in exchange for uh, verses to the new state religion, modern science, and espionage. Records detailing a fraction of Eric Traub's activities are now available to the public, but most are withheld by Army Intelligence and CIA on grounds of national security. But there's enough of a glimpse to draw quite 
a sketch. And I would agree with that. I think there is quite enough of a glimpse to draw a sketch from the interesting fact that we don't have a lot of this information declassified and we we definitely have m way more speculation i think than being able to say facts about the unit 731 ties that we're trying to tie in and the the different things that maybe the u.s could have even been sponsoring uh unit 731 to do as we see there i mean we have a rockefeller trained eric traub being basically sponsored to go continue his research in Germany um, and being watched by the CIA very carefully to make sure that he doesn't do anything bad, right? Because they weren't just watching him to make sure that they don't just continue to get this feedback loop of the research that they are allowed to do during these war times, during these times when uh, they just so conveniently get let go for their war crimes to uh, help us make better vaccines, of course. You know, of course, it's all in the name of uh, making a better vaccine and making sure that we can protect ourselves against uh, cancer. That's why we're doing these things. It's justified to do for that reason. Now, if you remember uh, a few episodes ago, we had um, David Emery, who we feature heavily on this sh particular series in the TylerBlur.com show, and are happy to have him step in as a pinch hitter and lead the way a lot of the time to keep us going in this episode so we're going to have another reading from david emery uh here as we want to make sure that that his beautiful work gets well recognized and more looked at by people over at spitfirelist.com you can find the archive and support his work and i would suggest that you do so but there was the very important episode 686 updates on national cancer institute's viral cancer program for biological warfare and aids and connecting in more of what we're talking about with this cancer reese the cancer research uh cover of calling cancer research uh really what appears to be more active and ongoing just biological warfare research so today we're going to skip into a different episode for the record number 606 project paperclip and aids to continue on the theme of what we've been discussing here today in the bio war uh, research of a different color. Um, this is episode nine of the bio war and I'm going to let Dave take us for side one, the full side one from his episode 606 project paperclip and AIDS. There's a side two, so keep that in mind. There's um, AFA number 16, which he recommends to go through. I do as well. Um, I've been using Dave's sort of cancer or uh, research guidelines to help me navigate through the bio war and going through epidemics epidemic or weapons uh, the afa 16 on aids uh, there's a one two three four five part series about you know three and a half to four hours of total material there and uh, we've gone into the 686. So again, I'm just kind of pointing you around how to navigate through some of Dave's work. And I'm also not going to, you know, just take some of the things that he's been helping me understand and then jump in and, and just cover it without going back and saying, I, I figure, like I said, it was saying before, I'm more like the DJ. I'm more like a, a, a VJ. I am a researcher. I do like to research. I've been building research models and doing this sort of research now for over six or seven years um, publicly. And before that, I was, you know, getting into things myself and getting spun up to being able to pr produce 
And as I stated earlier, I, I plan to continue the research and just the fact that I live stream on, on YouTube, for example, I, I don't have any problem with those that are watching me on YouTube. Hello, thank you for watching. I appreciate you guys. But it's more that it doesn't matter to me the forum. The, I will continue to do the work. Uh, I do appreciate those that have supported and donated. You can go to tylerblair.com slash donate and contribute to the show. But I don't do this for a monetization reason either. Uh, for me, it's more of a duty of uh, I have the ability, so I have the responsibility to the truth, to freedom and prosperity and to help other people understand these things, I think is helping them to defend against it. And I think that smarter minds will be able to develop um, treatments and methods that will help people heal from these biological weapons that are now rampant and uh, ravaging humanity. Um, so now we're just going to go through, again, a section from David Emery's episode 606, uh, Operation Paperclip and AIDS. Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and this is Side 1 of For the Record Program number 606, titled Project Paperclip and AIDS. This is being recorded on August 12th of the year 2007. Uh, before I get into the main body of the broadcast, please take advantage of the enormous amount of material, the growing amount of material that is available online. If you only listen to the broadcast, either live and or online, you're missing really the better part of the for-the-record experience, so to speak. There, I turn each program into a long article-length written description. There is an entire mini-library of old anti-fascist books available online. WFMU is archiving the entire For the Record series on real audio. Uh, you can also download programs from Spitfire. So go to the Spitfire website and the linked websites, and there's a fantastic amount of information available. And increasingly, I think, an intelligent use of the website is going to be critical for understanding the material that I'm presenting. Now... Uh, this broadcast is going to be, to a considerable extent, review of pieces of information that I have included it in one broadcast or another previously. Like many broadcasts, this program is speculative in nature. However, I think that uh, in light of what's taking place on the world health scene, so to speak, uh, it, it is more than... Uh, the, 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 this particular broadcast is more than overdue. Now, uh, for many years, well over, well, almost, almost a quarter of a century, the better part of a quarter of a century, I've been discussing AIDS and the disturbing body of information indicating that AIDS is a man-made disease, that it's not uh, a naturally occurring organism or a naturally occurring affliction. We're going to review some of the pieces of information pointing in that direction in the broadcast that uh, we're now in. Uh, I strongly recommend that people who would like to flesh out their understanding uh, not only take advantage of the many broadcasts, the For the Record broadcasts that are available online, including and especially For the Record 16, but also contact Spitfire and get a hold of AFA program number 16, dealing with AIDS as a biological warfare weapon. That is the foundational 
document, so to speak, for much of this research. Again, I'm going to review some points of information that figure prominently in this line of inquiry throughout the program. But again, the websites uh, maintained by Spitfire and also uh, other interests, and also the, the AFA program number 16, uh, AIDS, uh, weapon, uh, uh, Epidemic or Weapon of War, I believe was the formal title of AFA 16. But do get a hold of that because it will flesh out your understanding. Now, the title of the program, Project Paperclip and AIDS, refers to a program that was engaged in by uh, the U.S. National Security Establishment at the end of World War II in which uh, Nazi scientists and also Japanese scientists, many of them war criminals of the first order, were brought into the United States for their technical expertise. One of the people, for example, somebody we're going to touch on later in this broadcast, who was brought into the United States and who worked on biological warfare programs for the United States was Dr. Eric Traub, who was in charge of virological and bacteriological warfare research for the Third Reich. That was conducted, that Third Reich research, that is, was conducted under the auspices of the SS. And interestingly and perhaps significantly, the Third Reich's bacteriological and virological warfare program was masked. It was officially labeled a cancer research program. Uh, In AFA 16, we took a look at the National Cancer Institute's Viral Oncology Program conducted at uh, what had been Fort Detrick, the Army's top biological warfare research center. And uh, the program that appears to have given rise to AIDS was also uh, that viral cancer research program. And uh, so it, it, it is interesting that the BW program engaged in by the Third Reich was called Cancer Research, and the circumstantial evidence points to AIDS as an outgrowth of the National Cancer Institute's uh, Viral Oncology Research Program, that is to say, researching how certain viruses cause cancer. We, by the way, are going to touch ever so briefly on uh, the SV40 cancer-causing monkey virus that is now coursing through this and other, the U.S. and other populations. We've talked about that most recently with Ed Haslam. But one of the things we're going to be looking at in this program is the possibility that the research which ultimately culminated in the development of AIDS may have been built on a foundation that comes from the Third Reich. Certainly, again, we know that Dr. Eric Traub and his assistant, Anna Berger, who were in charge of uh, BW, basically virological and bacteriological warfare research for the Third Reich, were brought into the United States under the auspices of Project Paperclip. We are going to take a look, too, at attempts, unsuccessful attempts, uh, at bringing a Nazi war criminal named Dr. Franz Liesau Zacharias into the United States. Uh, Zaharias was based in Spain, and his name was on a list of Nazi criminals who were ostensibly wanted by the Allies so they could be brought to justice, but uh, a knowing reading of that list, and in particular a knowing reading, a knowledgeable reading of uh, some of the people's CVs, their curricula, curricula vitae, uh, suggest that some of them, including Dr. Franz Liza Zaharias, 
may have actually been sought because of their expertise. Uh, Franz Lizal Zacharias, again, was based in Spain, remained in Spain until 1992. His specialty was securing monkeys and primates and other types of animals for experimental research by the Third Reich. And in particular, the Spanish press says that uh, the experimentation program that he was involved with uh, concerned deliberately infecting concentration camp inmates with diseases, including bubonic plague. And we're going to talk about that uh, later on in the program. Uh, certainly, whatever it was about Franz Lizau Zacharias that uh, people found so intriguing, it was not the fact that he could he knew how to get monkeys out of Africa. That was something quite clearly that the U.S. knew how to do on its own. Uh, with two deadly evolved, I believe, at least in one case, a genetically engineered virus, namely AIDS, which appears to be a, an altered monkey virus, uh, a virus that jumped from monkeys to humans. I believe it was deliberately altered. And with SV40, a cancer-causing monkey virus that contaminated vaccines, the issue of monkey viruses and what they can do to human beings is front and center here. Now, again, this program is speculative in nature, and I think that... Uh, there, there is certainly more work to be done, but the personage of Franz Lizau Zacharias is a very, very interesting individual, and I think the interest shown in him by the U.S. at the end of the war might, I say might, have implications for the development of AIDS. And there are some indications that AIDS may have grown out of research, again, whose foundation uh, was rooted in the Third Reich. I'm going to review a little bit of information from the original AFA-16 program. One of the books that we utilized in uh, AFA-16 was a book called A Higher Form of Killing, co-authored by Robert Harris and Jeremy Paxman. In the original Hill and Wang softcover edition, published in 1982, there is a passage which was deleted when the book was republished in 2002 by Random House. Uh, Random House is now owned by Bertelsmann, the publishing house of the SS. It is now the largest English-language publisher. What is contained in the book, A Higher Form of Killing, right at the end of the 1982 edition, is some rumination about the possible development of a new type of disease-causing organism. And we're going to read first from text from The Higher Form of Killing, and in turn, that excerpts a bit of testimony from a Dr. MacArthur in a House subcommittee hearing that was, a, that was drawing up the defense budget for a fiscal year 1969 and 70. So what you're about to hear was something that was said on the floor of Congress in the uh, hearings, basically in 1969. As long ago as 1962, quoting now from A Higher Form of Killing, beginning again, as long ago as 1962, 40 scientists were employed at the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories on full-time genetics research. Many others, it was said, appreciate the implications of genetics for their own work. The implications were made more specific that genetic engineering could solve one of the major disadvantages of biological warfare, that it is limited to diseases which occur naturally somewhere in the world. And then the quote from Dr. MacArthur. Now again, this is a doctor testifying in front of a House subcommittee 
uh, that was drawing up the fiscal the, the budget, the defense budget for fiscal year 1969 and 70. Dr. MacArthur said in 1969, within the next five to ten years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism which could differ in certain important respects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease. And, uh, of course, refractory, it can mean resistant to, it can also mean breaking down, just as a prism, refract, a pr- a prism refracts light, breaks it down into its component spectra. Uh, then the authors, now bear in mind that was said in 1969, and of course AIDS first made its appearance to the general public anyway, in exactly that time period. The authors, Paxman and Harris, in 1982 went on to comment, The possibility that such a super germ may have been successfully produced in a laboratory somewhere in the world in the years since that assessment was made is one which should not be too readily cast aside. No, indeed. And uh, in For the Record program number 16, we looked at evidence that, in fact, that program did get funded. And lo and behold, a disease unlike any other uh, appeared, a disease that breaks down, a, a sexually transmitted disease that destroys the immune system. We're going to talk about some of the many strange aspects of AIDS, in particular the epidemiology later on in the program, but what we're going to do now is to review a curious aspect of this disease. Uh, I should mention that uh, AIDS, that it depends on what source one checks, but it was supposedly an African monkey virus that had existed in Africa for years. And then it was first detected strange to be, very strangely among gays in three North American cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. Uh, the notion that a disease as deadly as AIDS, basically you get it, you're dead, uh, could have existed in a part of the world where people's health and their immune systems in particular were already compromised by bad diet, uh, inadequate medical care, or other systemic infections or parasites, as is the case in Africa, and would not have been noticed is just a bit much. It, it, it strains the credibility. One of the very strange things about AIDS, again, supposedly a monkey virus that jumped to humans. One of the very strange things about AIDS is that there is a hereditary immunity to HIV infection, but that gene is a recessive one. It is only present in the white race. No other racial group has it, and according to some sources, it is only available uh, in uh, basically that it is peculiar to, to Northern Europeans, quote, Aryans, unquote. Certainly, this particular hereditary trait is present only in white people and, according to some sources, present only in purebred Northern Europeans or Aryans. Medical people and scientific people that I've mentioned this to have, it it was very strange, they they actually laugh, not ha-ha laughter, but laughter in the sense of uh, what Nietzsche said when he observed that, quote, a joke is the epigram on the death of a feeling. Uh, Scientific and medically qualified people that I've discussed this with, uh, not a lot of them, but uh, without exception, they have viewed that as extremely suspicious and, in fact, 
uh, indicative the, of the fact that AIDS was deliberately created. Nature is not going to do something like that. Here's an African monkey virus which mutates, becomes a deadly human scourge, but purebred Northern Europeans or white people just happen to have a hereditary immunity to it. It's the Aryan virus. Uh, that particular hereditary immunity appears to have also conferred limited immunity from the bubonic plague on the individuals who have it. And we're going to revisit a bit of research that we looked at in For the Record 472. Uh, in turn, we're going to access some information from a, the PBS.org website. It's called Secrets of the Dead, Case File, Mystery of the Black Death. And uh, we're going to, I'm going to reread some information about the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. This is a mutation present only in white people and, according to some sources, only in purebred Northern Europeans, or, quote, Aryans, unquote, that confers basically freedom from infection by bubonic plague and AIDS. Reading now from Secrets of the Dead, Case File, Mystery of the Black Death, in September of 1665, George Vickers, a tailor in the small central England village of Iam, E-Y-A-M, received a parcel of cloth ridden with plague-infected fleas from London. Four days later, Vickers died. By the end of the month, five more villagers had succumbed to the plague. The panicked town turned to their rector, William Montpassant, who persuaded them to quarantine the entire village to prevent the bacterium from spreading throughout the region. It seemed like suicide. A year later, the first outsiders ventured into Iam expecting to find a ghost town. Yet, miraculously, half the town had survived. How did so many villagers live through the most devastating disease known to man? Local Iam lore tells befuddling stories of plague survivors who had close contact with the bacterium but never caught the disease. Elizabeth Hancock buried six children and her husband in a week, but never became ill. The village gravedigger handled hundreds of plague-ravaged corpses, but survived as well. Could these people have somehow been immune to the Black Death? Dr. Stephen O'Brien of the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C. suggests they were. His work with HIV and the mutated form of the gene CCR called Delta-32 led him to IAM. In 1996, research showed that Delta-32 prevents HIV from entering human cells and infecting the body. O'Brien thought this principle could be applied to the plague bacterium, which affects the body in a similar manner. To determine whether the IAM plague survivors may have carried Delta-32, O'Brien tested the DNA of their modern descendants. What he found out was startling. And skipping down... For a disease-causing microorganism to infect the human body, there must be a gateway or portal through which it enters into human cells. The plague bacterium works this way, hijacking the white blood cells sent to eliminate it. Traveling inside the white blood cells to the lymph nodes, the bacteria break out and attack the focal point of the human immune system. Dr. Stephen O'Brien felt that the mutated CCR5 gene Delta-32 may have prevented the plague from being able to enter its host's white blood cells, unquote. And uh, bear in mind, too, that it also appears to function that way with regard to AIDS. Continuing, I am provided O'Brien an ideal opportunity to test this theory. 
Specifically, Iam was an isolated population known to have survived a plague epidemic. Everyone in the town would have been exposed to the bacterium, so it's likely that any life-saving genetic trait would have been possessed by each of these survivors. Like a Xerox machine, unquote, says O'Brien, their gene frequencies have been replicated for several generations without a lot of infusion from outside, unquote, thus providing a viable pool of survivor descendants who would have inherited such a trait. DNA samples could only be collected from direct descendants of the plague survivors. DNA is the principal component of chromosomes, which carry the genes with the transmit hereditary characteristics. We inherit our DNA from our parents. Thus, I am resident Joan Plant, for instance, may have inherited the Delta 32 mutation from one of her ancient relatives. Plant can trace her mother's lineage back ten generations to the Blackwell siblings, Francis and Margaret, who both lived through the plague to the turn of the century. The next step was to harvest a DNA sample from Joan and the other descendants. DNA is found in the nuclei of cells. The amount is consistent in all typical cells regardless of the size or function of that cell. One of the easiest methods of obtaining a DNA tissue sample is to take a cheek or buccal swab. Note the following passage. After three weeks of testing at the University College in London, Delta 32 had been found in 14% of the samples. This is a genetically significant percentage, yet what really did it mean? Could the villagers have inherited Delta 32 from elsewhere, residents who had moved to the community in the 350 years since the plague? Was this really a higher percentage than anywhere else? To find out, O'Brien assembled an international team of scientists to test for the presence of Delta 32 around the world. Quote, Native Africans did not have Delta 32 at all, O'Brien says. And when we looked at East Asians and Indians, they were also flat zero. In fact, the levels of Delta 32 found in Iam were only matched in regions of Europe that had been affected by the plague and in America, which was for the most part settled by European plague survivors and their descendants. Now, again, as mentioned at the very outset of this particular uh, passage that I've been reading, the CCR5 Delta 32 provides immunity to, inf basically provides protection against infection by AIDS. Again, refer reviewing as we uh, course into what I'm about to read uh, from this same passage. In 1996, research showed that Delta 32 prevents HIV from entering human cells and infecting the body. It also apparently conferred immunity to those who uh, had uh, the CCR5 Delta 32. It can provide immunity to the plague as well. Returning to the passage we were just reading, Native Africans did not have Delta 32 at all, O'Brien says, and when we looked at East Asians and Indians, they were also flat zero. In fact, the levels of Delta 32 found in Iam were only matched in regions of Europe that had been affected by the plague and in America, which was for the most part settled by European plague survivors and their descendants. Meanwhile, recent work with another disease strikingly similar to plague, AIDS, suggests O'Brien was on the right track. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, tricks the immune system in a similar manner as the plague bacterium, targeting and taking over white blood cells. 
Virologist Dr. Bill Paxson at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center in New York City noticed, quote, the center had no study of people who were exposed to HIV, but who had remained negative, unquote. He began testing the blood of high-risk HIV-negative individuals like Steve Crohn, C-R-O-H-N, exposing their blood to 3,000 times the amount of HIV normally needed to infect a cell. Steve's blood never became infected. We thought maybe we had infected the culture with bacteria or whatever, says Paxton. So we went back to Steve, but it was the same result. We went back again and again. Same result, unquote. Paxton began studying Crohn's DNA and concluded there was some sort of blocking mechanism preventing the virus from binding to his cells. Further research showed that the mechanism was Delta-32. Scientists studying HIV first learned about the gateway blocking capacity of the CCR5 mutation in 1996. Several drug companies then quickly began exploring the possibility of developing pharmaceuticals that would mimic Delta-32 by binding to CCR5 and blocking the attachment of HIV. So basically, this CCR5 Delta-32 mutation, a recessive one, conferred basically freedom from infection by the plague and also AIDS. It is only present in white people. No other racial group has it. And according to the allegations uh, in uh, some more information that's contained in, for the record, 472, uh, it isn't just white people, it's purebred, purebred, quote, Aryans, unquote, or Northern Europeans. Now, a caveat in the uh, web entry here, the web posting that I'm going to excerpt here, uh, there is no sourcing for this. Now, obviously, one has to one has to approach anything on the Internet with great caution. Uh, the Internet is an open medium, and uh, an awful lot of the, what's on there is complete BS, because there's, there's absolutely no... <laughs> There's no regulatory device of any kind on the Internet. So uh, one always wants to be uh, careful with information that is disseminated via the Internet. Uh, There is no sourcing of what this person is maintaining about the CCR5 Delta 32. I'd be interested to see if if the literature itself does indeed corroborate what this person is maintaining. From Aryan genes immune to death from AIDS, we read... This is the nightmare of AIDS no one wants to believe. As we come closer to celebrating on December 1st, yet another World AIDS Day, let's take a good hard look at what's really going on before we pour more of our ever-diminishing, hard-earned money down yet another horrendous sinkhole. It has been found that some Caucasians who have tested positive for the HIV virus were found to take a very long time to actually develop full-blown AIDS, as they call it. It has since been discovered since 1997 that 20% of European Caucasians have the so-called Aryan, unquote, genetic disposition. If both your parents, in other words, are of Aryan descent, it appears you can never die of AIDS, even though you might be infected. The reason for this is in the genetic coding of the killer T-cells, which are part of the body's immune system's protective shield. These are the cells which are attacked by by the HIV retrovirus. The location of the attack has been discovered. It is on the CCR5 gene in the third DNA gene pair. The particular location is the Delta-32 receptor site. If either of your DNA pairs from either either your mother or father is Delta-32 positive, then HIV virus can attach itself at that point. 
If you are Delta 32 negative, then HIV just floats around in your blood harmlessly for you. But even though you may be Delta 32 negative at both sites, you can supposedly still spread the virus. What has been discovered is that these 20% of European Caucasians are members of the Aryan gene pool. Also, it has been discovered that the farther north you go in Europe, say in Norway, Finland, Sweden, etc., you find the highest percentage of people that are Delta 32 negative at the CCR5 gene allele. That this would be a simple coincidence is beyond all human reason. Parenthetically, the scientific and medically qualified people that I, to, to whom I spoke had this same reaction. Beginning again, that this would be a simple coincidence is beyond all human reason. To say that HIV suddenly crawled out of the woodwork in Central Africa by someone being bitten by a green tree monkey is one thing, but then to say that the only human gene pool on Earth that is immune to HIV is the Aryan race is a coincidence that even Howdy Doody wouldn't buy. What we are looking at is a genocide perpetrated on racial groups of the world that makes the Nazi Holocaust look like romper room. Add to that the global trafficking in drugs that specifically target minorities, the poor, and people of color, and while it may not look like the Holocaust during World War II, it doesn't have to. The AIDS epidemic isn't a mysterious virological disease, it is calculated murder, and a genocide that is beyond human comprehension. And since it is the venerated Aryan race that is immune to it, then one has to assume that they are the ones who promulgated it. Well, uh, again, take some of that with a grain of salt, uh, simply because there's no sourcing. Uh, there is more research to be done, but certainly it appears that only the white race and only people from Europe who would uh, survive the plague have the Delta, or their descendants have the CCR5 Delta 32 gene. We're going to take a look inside, too, at the possibility that perhaps some of this research may date from the Nazi concentration camps of World War II, and we are going to ask the musical question, when the U.S. brought many of these scientists to work in the United States, including war criminals of the First Order, is it possible that some of the research that they had been conducting ultimately was further nurtured and perhaps resulted in AIDS. It is, as I like to say, food for thought and grounds for further research. To flesh out your understanding on these and other topics, please do use the Spitfire website at www.spitfirelist.com and use the other program material. Uh, Al at Spitfire, the people at WFMU, and many others have uh, gone that extra mile to make this information available to you, so please utilize it. This concludes side one of For the Record program number 606, Project Paperclip and AIDS. This is being recorded on August 12th of the year 2007. My name is Dave Emery. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Emery, for carrying the heavy load there for us. And providing that excellent insight and reading through uh, that information. And that will be linked up in the show notes where you can find the references that he was mentioning that you should, uh, I think, follow up on. Uh, the comments in the sections of those articles that Dave produces are useful as well. And um, we're going to be diving more into that. That was just a... <laughs> Excuse me, I had to sneeze. That was just a teaser on what's more to come about the CCR5 Delta 32 mu mutation and other things like that.
Now, if we're just following up on what was being said there, there's a Wikipedia here on CCR5CC Chimokin receptor type 5, also known as CCR5 or CD195, is a protein on the surface of white blood cells that is involved in the immune system as it acts like a receptor for chimokins. In humans, the CCR5 gene that encodes the CCR5 protein is located in the short arm at position 21 in chromosome 3. Certain populations have inherited the 30, Delta 32 mutation, resulting in genetic deletion of a pro portion of the CCR5 gene. Homozygous carriers of the uh, homozygous carriers of the mutation are resistant to the M-tropic strains of HIV-1 infection. In the function, the CCR5 protein belongs to the beta-chamokin receptors family of the integral membrane proteins. It is a G protein. Uh, let's see here. There we zoom in a little. It is a G protein coupled receptor with functions as a chamokin receptor in the CC chamokin group. CCR5 uh, cognate li ligands include CCL3 and CCL4, also known as MIP1A and something I can't understand, respectively, and CCL3L1. CCR5 furthermore interacts with CCL5 uh, chemotactic cytokine protein, also known as RANTES, R-A-N-T-E-S. CCR5 is a predominantly expressed on T cells, macrophages, dendritic, uh, dendritic cells, eosinophilus, <laughs> mag magroglia, and a subpopulation of either breast or prostate cancer cells. The expression of CCR5 is selectively induced during a cancer transformation process and is not expressed in normal breast or prostate ephelial cells. Approximately 50% of human breast cancers expressed CCR5 primarily in triple negative breast cancer. All right, so reading down on the section on HIV here on the Wikipedia, just learning more about what we were hearing about there from that article, that had that information that Dave Emery was talking about. And uh, let's see, can uh, skip down to the section on HIV. HIV most commonly used the Chimokin receptor, CCR5 and or C XCR4 as co-receptors to inter-target immunological cells. These receptors are located on the surface of host immune cells whereby they provide a method of entry for the HIV-1 virus to infect the cell. The HIV-1 envelope glycoprotein structure is essential in enabling the viral entity of HIV-1 into the target host. Okay, so there's a lot more here on cancer um, and other things like that with the Wikipedia. That is not in the show notes, so I'll remember to link that up when I'm done. I'm going to skip here now to an article uh, on Science Daily, sciencedaily.com. On, and it says, biologists discover why 10% of Europeans are safe from HIV infection. This was dated April 3rd, 2005, from the University of Liverpool. Summary, biologists at the University of Lib Liverpool have discovered how plagues in the Middle Ages have made around 10% of Europeans resistant to HIV. 
biologists at the and keeping in mind that it's possible that the Nazis studying these things, studying the plague, uh, studying the aftermath, studying the Europeans, uh, the 10% of Europeans would understand this, right? And with this understanding and then attempting to create race-specific bioweapons or uh, gene-driven technologies, extinction-type technology, uh, bioweapons which target specific populations, which s target specific um, possibilities. So like it could target fertility in East Asian males, for example, or it could target uh, people from Africa specifically and knowing about this ccr5 delta 32 mutation it's possible you know i'm just theorizing here that people could then develop race specific bioweapons that would you know not uh, affect as uh, drastically or as negatively the white aryan race uh, which you know there's some information that seemed to go back to linking uh, this specific uh, thing to specific uh, white populations, uh, the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. Scientists have, so we'll read from the article here from Science News. Scientists have known for some time that these individuals carry a genetic mutation known as CCR5 Delta 32, which prevents the virus from entering the cells of immune systems, but have been able to account for the high levels of gene in Scandinavia and relatively low areas in the bordering Mediterranean. They have also been puzzled by the fact that HIV emerged only recently and has not played a role in raising the frequency of the mutations to the high levels found in some Europeans today. Professor Christopher Duncan and Susan Scott from the University School of Biological Sciences, whose research is published in the March edition of the journal Medical Genetics, attrib attribute the frequency of the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation to its protection from another deadly viral disease, acting over a sustained period by um, bygone historic times. Some scientists have suggested this disease could, be, could have been smallpox or even bubonic plague, but bubonic plague is a bacterial disease rather than a virus and is not blocked by the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. Professor Duncan commented, quote, The fact that the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation is restricted to Europeans suggests that the plagues of the Middle Ages played a big part in raising the frequency of the mutation. These plagues were also confined to Europe, persisted for more than 300 years, and had 100% case mortality, unquote. Around 1900, historians spread the idea that the plagues of Europe were not directly infectious diseases, disease, but were outbreaks of bubonic plague, overturning an accepted belief that had stood for 550 years. Professor Duncan and Dr. Scott illustrated in their book, Return of the Black Death, 2004, a widely published book, that this idea was incorrect and the plague of Europe from 1347 to 1660s were in fact continuing series of epidemic of the lethal viral hemorrhagic fever that used the CCR5 as an entry point to, into the immune system. So this is the more recent understanding of the plague, well, is that it was a hemorrhagic fever and uh, that it used the CCR5 as an entry point into the immune system. Using computer modeling, they demonstrated how the disease provided a selection 
transcription pressure that forced up the frequency of the mutation from 1 to 20,000 at the time of the Black Death to values of 1 in 10. Lethal viral hemorrhagic fevers were recorded in the Nile Valley from 1500 BC and were followed by the plagues of the Mesopotamia from 700 to 450 BC, the plagues of Athens 430 BC, and the plague of the Justinian AD 541 to 700, and the plagues of the early Islamic Empire AD 627 to 744. These continuing epidemics slowly raised the frequency from the original single mutation to about 1 in 20,000 in the 14th century simply by conferring protection from the otherwise certain death. Professor Duncan added, quote, Hemorrhagic plague did not disappear after the Great Plague of London in, in, in uh, 1665 through 66, but continued in Sweden, Copenhagen, Russia, Poland, and Hungary until 1800. This maintenance of hemorrhagic plague provided continuing selections pressure of the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation and explains why it occurs today at the highest frequency in Scandinavia and Russia. So that again that article being from the Science Daily and talking about that CCR5 Delta 32 mutation and also uh, the hemorrhagic fever um, that was uh, contributing to a part of these uh, lethal epidemics. All right, so that's uh, just adding on to that information there, continuing on um, from what we were hearing there from uh, episode 606 of Operation Paperclip and AIDS from Emory. We've learned about the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. We've learned about uh, Europeans that seem to be safe from HIV infection because of this mutation. And now we're going to read from an article uh, from Secrets of the Dead, PBS.org uh, article here, Mystery of the Black Death. And uh, this is a, a shorter article that I'm just going to continue reading here. So from this uh, PBS.org article, no one knows exactly why, but in the late 1320s or early 1330s, bubonic plague broke out in China's Gobi Desert, spread by flea-infested rats. It didn't take long for the disease to reach Europe. In October 1347, a Geonos, Ge, uh, Genesis Genose ship fleet returning back from the Black Sea, a key trade link with China, landed in the Messian, uh, Messina Sicilia, uh, Sicily, sorry, in Sicily, and most of those on board were already dead. And the ships were ordered out of the harbor, but it was too late. The town was soon overcome with pestilence. And from there, the disease quickly spread among, let me just zoom in a little bit there. Uh, okay, the town was soon overcome with pestilence, and from there the disease quickly spread north along trade routes through Italy and across the European continent. By the following spring, it had reached as far north as England, and within five years, it had killed 25 million people, one-third of the European population. The bubonic plague is caused by a bacterium called Yersinia pestis. We learned about that one earlier, right? Uh, the, the plague virus that was being injected into people by Unit 731. 
that, uh, parenthetically from me, going back to the article, and is characterized by chills, fever, vomiting, diarrhea, and the formation of black boils and armpit in the armpit, neck, and groin. Though the disease was originally called, quote, the great mortality, unquote, and the, quote, the great pestilence, unquote, the name, quote, black death, unquote, was eventually adopted because of these black boils, which derive their color from the dried blood under the skin caused by internal bleeding. In certain cases, the bacterium spreads to the victim's lungs, causing them to fill with frothy, bloody liquid. This derivation of the disease is called the pneumonic plague. Uh, am I saying that correct? Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. And can quickly spread from person to person through the air. It is almost always lethal. So this is a PBS article that we're reading from again here. Just a little bit of background on the Black Death, the Great Pestilence. The plague first spread in Britain in, 19, in 1348, traveling from Bristol to Oxford and London in several days. More than 300 years later, in 1665, perhaps the worst of the English epidemics broke out in London. That summer, the notably... The nobility and clergy fled the city as some 7,000 people died each week. As many as 100,000 lives were lost before winter, killed the f uh, before winter killed the fleas and the epidemic tapered off. Contemporary medicine could provide no explanation for the sickness and most doctors were afraid to offer treatment. In an attempt to keep from being infected, the few physicians who did risk exposure wore leather masks and glass eyes with glass eyes, a long beak filled with herbs and spices that were uh, thought to ward off the illness. Even one person in a household showing plague-like symptoms was enough to mandate 40-day quarantine for the whole home, a virtual death sentence for everyone living in it. In September of 1665, George v Vickers a tailor in a small central England village of Iam received a parcel of cloth ridden with plague-infected fleas from London four days later. Vicar died. By the end of the month, five more villagers had to succumb to the plague. The panicked town turned to their uh, rector, William's mom's mom, Poson, who persuaded persuaded them to quarantine the entire village to prevent the bacterium from spreading through the region. It seemed like suicide. A year later, the outsiders vented, ventured into Iam expecting a ghost town, yet miraculously half of the town survived. Uh, as <clears throat> How did so many villagers survive? Okay, so we're getting to the Delta 32 thing. I believe that Emery touched on or read this whole article in the thing we just listened to, so this is a little bit of repeat or... Uh, review of what we've already heard. Um, Dr. Stephen O'Brien of the National Institute of Health in Washington suggests they were um, uh, suggest they were. His work with HIV and the mutated form of the gene CCR5 called Delta 32 led to IM. In 1996, research showed that Delta 32 prevents HIV from entering human cells and infecting the body. O'Brien thought this principle could be applied to the plague bacteria, which affects the body in a similar manner, to determine whether IM plague survivors may have carried Delta-32. O'Brien tested DNA of the modern-day descendants. What he found was startling. 
Um, so I guess that's supposed to continue on, <laughs> but it's did. Is there a documentary? The article just kind of stops there. But I believe uh, we covered that earlier uh, in Emory. So we're, again, just doing some review here. Learning about, some people might be learning about new things right now. Some people listening to this are, are this is old hat. This is information that they had already gone through. This is research. Maybe they have uh, stacks of books in some room that they you know, are done with. They don't go through this anymore. For other people, they've, this is the first time hearing anything like this, that there's um, evidence that HIV only affects certain populations. Um, we have upcoming in the bio war, we're going to be touching on Dr. Mary's monkey from Edward T. Haslam. Uh, we'll be going more into the plague of corruption um, from Dr. Uh, Judy Mikovich and uh, Kent Heck and Lively, and a uh, foreword by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from the publisher of the Children's Health Defense, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s thing. Uh, we'll be going into the hot zone and Ebola outbreaks and uh, origin and the spreadability and origins maybe of the Ebola virus. But for now, we're just going to continue reading here from this Mother Jones article 70 percent of people killed in chicago by the coronavirus are black from april 5th of 2020 uh, from motherjones.com this article will be in the show notes for those that are wanting to go look the coronavirus is a rapidly developing news story so come so some of the content in this article might be out of date check our most recent coverage for coronavirus crisis and subscribe Okay, so that'd be interesting. The federal government still has isn't sharing any official statistics regarding their racial breakdown of the coronavirus deaths, but this information is starting to seep out of the local level for some states and cities, showing that the pandemic is disproportionately killing black Americans and other communities of color. In Chicago, <coughs> new data released Saturday showed that 70% of people who have died from COVID-19 in the city were black. According to a report, oh, let's see here, I want to go to a new screen. Okay, maybe not. In Chicago, I'm going to start with that again. Uh, sorry, similar numbers are emerging elsewhere. elsewhere. In New York, the epicenter for the coronavirus in the United States the highest concentration of infections has been in low-income neighborhoods with big immigration pop with big immigrant populations in wisconsin's w milwaukee county 81 percent of people killed by the virus have been black according to the propublica investigation though just 26 percent of the county's population identifies as black in michigan where Black people make up 12% of the population. 40% of those killed have been black, many of them in Detroit. So there's a very small percentage of, well, I mean, small relatively speaking to the greater population. That is a large majority of, you know, a, a minority population. Um, and But what they're saying is, like, there's still a high percentage of the people that are dying that are black, even though they only make up 26%, 12% of the population, 40% uh, of those killed have been black, uh, many of them in Detroit. 
The novel coronavirus is infecting people of all races and income levels, but is also exposing familiar patterns of racial gaps in health outcomes that stem from systemic discrimination and access to employment, housing, and medical care. So they're obviously not making some of the links that we might be making here today in the BioSci War. Nothing f permanently firmly said, but they're saying that it's for these reasons, which could definitely could be. Uh, black people are more likely than white people to use public transportation to travel to jobs, and that can't be worked from home, um, making social distancing more difficult. They're also less likely to have health insurance and more likely to have pre-existing conditions like asthma that make them, them particularly vulnerable to the virus. In Chicago, health experts noted that black people are more likely to have diabetes, high blood pressure, and respiratory problems, conditions that stem from and uh, stem from and be, I think it means to say, and can be exacerbated by poverty, environmental pollution, and limited access to doctors. For those who can get to the hospital, more problems may await. One study of several, one study of several states highlighted in NPR indicates that doctors may be less likely to refer black individuals for testing when they come in with the symptoms like fever, coughing, and trouble breathing. And in some low-income neighborhoods, it can take longer to get a test because testing centers have struggle, struggled to acquire equipment and protective gear. On March 27th, a group of Democratic lawmakers published Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar to start tracking and addressing racial disparities in the national response to the coronavirus outbreak. In a letter signed by Senator Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, as well as Representatives Ayanna Presley and Robin L. Kelly, they said the Center for Disease Control and Prevention had failed to collect and publicly report racial data about who is tested and affected by the virus. Quote, any attempt to contain COVID-19 in the United States will have to address its potential spread in low-income communities of color, first and foremost, to protect the lives of those people in those communities, but also to slow the spread of the virus in the country as a whole, they wrote, unquote. According to the ProPublica, the CDC normally tracks information about age and race when monitoring an outbreak, as well as the location of people affected. For this pandemic, the agency has released data about age and location, but not race. And this article, again, was written in April 5th of 2020 on Mother Jones. Uh, we'll have to follow up on the data from the CDC. Uh, everything you need to know about the vaccine passport is a recent article on the Mother Jones blog uh, that would be an interesting to go into um, we'll have to go through and see what else they've got there but they really didn't get into much else speculation or any sort of other reasons why it may be spreading through the black population at a higher rate with the little amount of data that they had at the time of writing that article uh, but as you can see here what we're sort of speculating a bit here today what 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 is what if the actual vaccines uh, are detrimental to certain populations, certain races. What if this virus has been engineered to attack specific races? Uh, we can see that the Nazis had been doing this sort of research, uh, that they had been importing monkey viruses from Africa uh, into Fort Detrick, Maryland, into Plum Island, into uh, the German uh, sister branch 
in their biological weapons uh, agent as well as port uh, down of the uh, porting down of the British biological weapons lab. So, you know, studying these particular viruses, uh, knowing that there were certain Northern European or European races that were not affected as much and had this uh, Delta 32 mutation. And then also seeing that there seemed to be maybe hiding some of the information. So what I about, you know, how it's affecting the races now with coronavirus and why, you know, that's interesting that they may not be hiding it. There could be very good reason for them um, not uh, covering that. But let's go here now to another article called Early Data Shows African-Americans Have Contracted and Died of coronavirus at an alarming rate. This is from April 3rd, 2020. The coronavirus entered Milwaukee from a black affluent, uh, sorry, from a white affluent suburb. Then it took root in the city's black community and spread. Sorry, and erupted. As public health officials watched cases rise in March to many in the community shrugged off warnings rumors and conspiracy theories proliferated uh, proliferated on social media pushing the bogus idea that black people are now somehow immune to the disease as much of the initial focus was on the international travel so those who knew no more returning from asia or europe were quick to dismiss the risk then when the shelter-in-place orders came, there was a natural pushback among those who recall other painful government restrictions, including segregation and mass incarceration, on where black people could walk and gather. We're like, quote, this is, quote, we're like, we have to wake people up, unquote, from Milwaukee Health Commissioner uh, Jeanette Kowalik. As the disease spread at a higher rate in the black community, it made an even deeper cut environmental economic and political factors have compounded for generations putting black people at a higher risk of chronic conditions that leave lungs weak and uh sorry i've zoomed in and every time i zoom in i lose my place it seems like oh, i'll zoom in it'd be really easy and then you totally lose your place um putting black people at a higher risk of chronic conditions that leave lungs weak and immune systems vulnerable asthma heart disease hypertension and diabetes in milwaukee simply being black means your life expectancy is 14 years shorter on average than some white as of friday morning african americans made up almost half of the milwaukee county's four nine hundred and forty five cases and 81 percent of its 27 deaths in a county whose population is 27 percent black Milwaukee is one of the fewest places in the United States that tracking the racial breakdown of the people who have been infected by the novel coronavirus, offering a glimpse at the disproportionate destruction it is inflicting on black communities nationwide. In Michigan, where the state's population is 14% black, African Americans made up 35% of the cases and 40% of the deaths as of Friday morning. Detroit, where a majority of residents are black, has emerged as a hot spot with a high death toll, as the New Orleans, Louisiana has not published case breakdowns by race, but 40% of the state's deaths have happened in Orleans Parish, where the majority of residents are black. Illinois and North Carolina are two of the few areas publishing statistics on COVID-19 cases by race, 
and their data shows a disproportionate number of African Americans were infected. Quote, it will be unimaginable pretty soon, unquote, said Dr. Celia J. Maxwell, an infectious disease physician and associate dean at Howard University College of Medicine, a school and hospital in Washington dedicated to education and care of the black community. Quote, and anything that comes around is going to be worse in our patients, period. Many of our patients have so many problems, but it is kind of like the nail in the coffin, unquote. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention tracks virulent outbreaks and typically releases detailed data that includes information about the age, race, and location of people affected. For the coronavirus pandemic, the CDC has released location of age data, but it has not been silent, or sorry, but it has been silent on race. The CDC did not respond to ProPublica's request for the race data related to the coronavirus or answer questions about whether they were collecting it at all. So this is a bit of a lengthy article, and as you can see, there's more evidence and data from Milwaukee there that there uh, happens to be a higher rate in black people dying and becoming more uh, affected by coronavirus. So we'll just read the bottom of this article. Residents have been urged to call 211 if they need help with anything from finding something or a place to stay. At the state has set up two voluntary isolation facilities where people with COVID-19 symptoms whose living situations are untenable, including the Super 8 Motel of Milwaukee. Despite the work being done in Milwaukee, experts with experts like Linda Sprague Martinez, a community health research at researcher at Boston University School of Social Work worry that government is not paying close enough attention to race and as the disease spreads will do little to blunt its toll. Quote, when COVID-19 passes and we see the losses, it will deeply tied to the story of post-World War II policies that left communists marginalized, unquote, Sprague said, quote, its impact is going to be tied to our history and legacy of racial inequities. It's going to be tied to the fact that we live in two very different worlds, unquote. Uh, on update to the article, this story has been updated to reflect that Illinois and North Carolina are breaking coronavirus cases down by race. So as the previous article said about those other states. So some interesting race statistics there uh, about the coronavirus. And again, we're just doing a little bit of speculation here for all the fact checkers out there that is it possible that people would understand the way that uh, that uh, gene mutation in the human chromosome uh, changed for certain people to be uh, more resilient to the plague virus, that that could have been studied and hybridized and used to uh, in programs to then create the AIDS, uh, HIV virus by studying, you know, SV40 and monkey viruses and uh, mix, uh, making these chimera viruses and biological weapons in the lab. And then uh, other populations would be more susceptible. Uh, you could say in negation that one race with the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation would be not susceptible, but you could say it in the positive that then 
other races that don't have that mutation would would be negatively affected and would it be a coincidence that particularly the african race would be more affected by aids that it's not just a gay virus but that it's actually something that's also race specific something that would affect certain races uh, differently than others and would it then be a stretch to say that some of the information that we've been covering about that operation paperclip and unit 731 and uh that would all link in a lineage to the current pandemic plague going on and that could be also a race-specific bioweapon which affects certain uh, races, certain genetics on the planet. Um, we know that it affects elderly people seemingly worse than uh, younger people, so it's also a depopulation technique and agenda being deployed on humanity. And uh, it could also be a very racist virus, uh, something that was designed to wipe out certain races. And that is the stretch that we're stretching by going through the information that we've gone through today in the bio war research of a different color. And we're going to go back now to newfound genetic clues to HIV rate in blacks. An international team, and this is from sfgate.com. Uh, this article coming in February 9th of 2012, and this will be linked up in the show notes. Um, there's some diagrams here, and it says, How a gene that fought malaria opened a door to AIDS. Malaria-susceptible, HIV-resistant. The Duffy receptor or protein is used by the malaria parasite to pry its way into red blood cells. Coincidentally, the Duffy receptor also sweeps up HIV particles in the bloodstream, keeping them from their primary target. White blood cells. HIV cannot infect red blood cells. Uh, malaria resistant or HIV susceptible on the right says a gene variant common among Africans disables the Duffy receptor, blocking access to the malaria parasite. But these red blood cells do not sweep up HIV, leaving white blood cells more vulnerable to infection. And uh, how a gene that fought malaria opened a door to AIDS chronicle graphed by john blanchard uh, let's see if we can zoom in a little here before we start reading this time it says here an international team of aids scientists has discovered that a gene variant common in blacks protects against certain types of malaria but increases susceptibility to hiv infection by 40 percent Researchers keen to find some biological clues to explain why people of African descent are bearing a disproportionate share of the world's AIDS cases suspect this subtle genetic trait, found in 60% of American blacks and 90% of Africans, might partially explain the difference. 10% of the world's population lives in sub-Saharan Africa, but that region accounts for 70% of the men, women, and children living with HIV infection. In the United States, African Americans make up 12% of the population, but account for half of the newly diagnosed HIV infections. Quote, the cause of the imbalance is not necessarily driven by behavior, unquote, said Phil Wilson, founder of the Black AIDS Institute in Los Angeles. Quote, gay black men do not engage in riskier behavior than gay white men, for example. African people with this gene have a higher vulnerability, unquote. Based on their analysis, the researchers estimated that this gene variant alone may account for 11% of the estimated 25 million HIV infections that have occurred in sub-Saharan Africa, roughly 2.7 million cases. 
The gene study was led by Dr. Sunil Aha, or <laughs> Ahuha, Ahuha, a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and published Wednesday in the journal Cell, Host, and Microbe. Finding from the Duffy Protein. <clears throat> Working in collaboration with renowned virologist Robin Wise of the University of College of London, the group zeroed in on the protein and found that the surface of the red blood cells uh, uh, found on the surface of the red blood cells. It is known in laboratory circles as the Duffy antigen. Certain species of malaria parasite latch onto the Duffy protein and use it as a gateway to enter into the red blood cells. Africans overwhelmingly carry a gene that disables this gateway, and Wise believes that this may have been the result of the evolu evolutionary battle between humans and malaria. The genetic trait is also pre prevalent among African Americans, who typically carry a mixture of African and European bloodlines. Quote, if there is no Duffy there, the malaria parasite can get in, unquote, said Wise. In 20th century, however, the Duffy protein appears to have taken on another role, seeming to absorb HIV particles like a sponge. The researchers said by soaping up the virus, the protein hampers the virus chances of, of invading vulnerable white blood cells, the first step in HIV infection. People with a disabled Duffy protein, most Africans, for example, may therefore be vulnerable to infection. Ahuha's team captured 814 African-American military personnel who were HIV negative with 470 who were infected with HIV. Out of this comparison, the researchers found that 40% higher risk of HIV among those genes suppressed by the Duffy, Duffy protein. Researchers also made a remarkable finding once a person with the African gene becomes infected, the same genetic trait appears to prolong survival. One of the Duffy protein's natural roles appears to be to ramp up the immune system. It attracts a number of chemical signals that promote inflammation, a defensive mechanism that normally protects the body but lays out a banquet of white blood cells for HIV to infect and destroy. Some of the genetic mutations raises the risk of HIV infection provides some protection to those who become infected. Similarly, those who carry the Duffy protein may be somewhat shielded from HIV infection, but once infected, may sicken and die sooner without treatment. Quote, there is a high order of complexity here, Ahuha conceded. Uh, that's an interesting article. As it, with a lot of the articles we go through, we may not be able to read the whole thing here. Um, let's just see if there's any kind of like conclusion. Let's read this section here. Well, actually, we'll just leave that one for the archives. I think we've made the point that there seems to be a phenomenon, a design, a bug, a feature, whatever you want to call it, of these viruses, of these diseases, in some cases that uh, leave some races open and more susceptible to infection, and some races uh, could actually be less susceptible, but then also it seems like uh, also the hemorrhagic fever aspect of the plague, or what you could call a combination of things coming together in the body and creating a response that inflames and causes encephalitis, causes inflammation, seems to be uh, more also what could be described as a, uh, a 
immuno hyper immune response or um, where your body basically has a, a response where it can drown out uh, your own fluids like the one article so aptly described as like bubbly bloody fluids in your lungs uh, and basically uh, drown you out and the particular term for that is like it's comical because I'm always trying to think of it at the right time and I can never think but maybe I will here in a sec now coming up in the bio sci war we're also going to be covering this book which is should be in the mail and then we'll go through it and we'll mix it in with some of those books that I was mentioning men mentioning earlier as we kind of go down this AIDS, HIV, uh, monkey virus, SV40, polio vaccine generated thing, uh, a higher form of killing, the secret history of chemical and biological warfare by Robert Harris. It was also mentioned by Dave in that episode 606. Uh, he has that on his Spitfire website here. And uh, he has a note here. What does it say? It says, The Secret History of Chemical and Biological Warfare by Robert Harris and Jeremy Paxton, 2002 Random House reprint, originally published in 1982. And here's where I, it's sometimes important to get the first edition. It says, Please note, the 2002 edition, uh, uh, the passage was omitted here that he has. And it says, quote, As long ago as 1962, 40 scientists were employed at the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories on full-time genetic research. Many others, it was said, appreciated the implications of genetics for their own work. The implications were made more specific that genetic engineering could solve one of the major disadvantages of biological warfare, that it is limited to diseases which may occur naturally somewhere in the world. Within the next five to ten years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism which could differ in certain important respects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the Im immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease. The possibility that such a super germ may have been successfully produced in a laboratory somewhere in the world in the years since that assessment was made is one of which should not be too readily cast aside. And I think Dave even read that as well. So we're kind of going back and forth and having a little overlap here. But we are uh, going to go through that book when it arrives. I also just want to bring up the playlist which came up earlier in a discussion this week I had in a work party was the vaccine research playlist that I linked in the show notes and there's good uh, videos in here that you could share out with people I've created this quite a few years ago and this is in the show notes the research playlist is for sharing with other people uh, there's even some colleagues some friends of mine in here uh, such as like Benny Wills polio explained video which is more at the bottom of this because there's a lot of information to go through some of it's quite shocking such as like the bio sci war now like if you were talking to somebody who was still thinking about if they should or shouldn't vaccinate their children or something like that that's what this playlist is for the bio sci war probably wouldn't be the first thing to share with that person but the bio sci war is meant to more like trickle out things like this to people put things like that we've talked about in this episode into people's hands so that when they're in those conversations with people they can use the tools that i'm providing as the evidence to 
you know, backup claims or, you know, get into an interesting discussion if that's all. Uh, but the vaccine research playlist could literally save lives. It could help people take pause and look into things a little bit more. As you can see, there's a couple videos in here that have been deleted and removed or are private. I'll have to update this. This I try to include in the show nights once in a while and bring it up. Um, for now, we're going to cut to what was supposed to be kind of an intermission. But now that we're, what, like three hours into the show, this could be more towards the outro of what we're going to play today. And I think I am going to do that. I have a few clips lined up here. Um, I may play a little DJ, but we have really gracefully or really graceful made a video called the lesson of history that cannot be forgotten. I'm going to play that after we conclude with the anthrax war. We may mix a little Corbett in there. I may come in and sign off at that moment. And then in the next episode, as brought up uh, last week, we're going to be getting into the gene drive technology and uh, the Gates Foundation, how they're involved um, with gene drive technology, uh, eugenics. I think we need to build out um, some eugenics information. We could even pull out the Creature of Control episode three, I believe, when I talked about crypto evolution of eugenics. And without having the aspects of eugenics, without having the aspects of freedom, without having the aspects of social Darwinism, without having the information of technocracy, and kybernetes, and uh, cybernetics, or the Anglo-American Anglo establishment, or, you know, uh, banking dynasty families that vampir vampiristically have set up systems to feed off of you, without having these other aspects... You know, it's all just, well, I'd rather just trust the scientists. This is all way too much work that Tyler is going into here. And I'd, I'd really just kind of rather, you know, watch the Q series, which I'm going to probably watch the Q series. But, and I, you know, last night, I, I don't just research this stuff and live in this stuff all the time. I do in stride put these shows together with the things that I'm researching and people may find the this, this stuff that I research uh, a little odd. And you may say, well, why would you spend the time to go into all this? So um, I don't expect everybody to understand, but at the same time, uh, if you do feel this is useful and helpful information, share it out. I could use the support. I could use uh, people giving this a little bit more legs, um, you know, being that the goal is to help reach a little bit of a wider audience. I don't want to grow this channel. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind to be like wildly successfully popular and all that, but that's not necessarily the goal of what we're trying to do here. Obviously I could do a lot different productions here with the tools that I have that would bring in a lot higher views, but instead um, I'm choosing to do long form, putting the re uh, information on the record and one of the things that that does is it allows me to build my archive out. So some people are like, oh, well, yeah, you're going on four hours here with like 10 people watching on the live stream. Well, that's not the biggest uh, metric that I'm looking at here. My goal is to get the information laid down, get it published, make sure it's out in numerous places, and then put it into people's hands so that it can be used as a long-term tool to help shape the narrative around freedom, truth, and prosperity, around health, around being successful as a, a leader and someone who can help other people grow into a position where they'd like to be. And we have a track record of doing that. And there's other projects that we'll bring up more on the TylerBlair.com live streams. But we could be doing 20, 30, 40 parts on this 
biocywar as, as far as the information I'm seeing that we're studying now. So that would be a series that I could then update over time as more of the biocywar unfolds. But then there'll be other topics that we'll bring up into this uh, stream. There'll be definitely other routes that we're going to go into. So, you know, for now, we're definitely deep into the biocywar here. And uh, this is definitely research of a different color along those lines. This is just the, some of the strange stuff that I see on Brave is always like crypto and masons and technology. And I don't know. It's just like this is definitely a background screen here on Brave Browser of a different color. Just thought that was kind of funny. But I'm going to go and break into our next clip. This is from Boyle's uh, feature documentary Anthrax War, CBC, The Passionate Eye full dr david kelly of from biological warfare that's the notes i have about the documentary let's just uh cut over to that and uh we'll see you back here in a little bit maybe after a few clips get played dollars for biodefense much of it for pro all right let's get it right we'll back it up a little bit let's back it up you know just dispensing money all up and down this massive proliferation of the uh, bio labs uh, all over the country unregulated research development testing there's too much money at stake here for anyone to say no this is the real legacy of the anthrax attacks since 2001, the U.S. government has budgeted over $50 billion for biodefense, much of it for private companies. Investigative journalist Edward J. Epstein finds this troubling. It clowns the chain of responsibility because private companies are owned by other private companies. And not only that, but it creates a mask for what could be government action, because now governments can do things and hide behind uh, private companies. A poster child for privatized biodefense was the Bioport Corporation. It was the sole supplier of a controversial anthrax vaccine. Since 1998, the vaccine has been mandatory for frontline U.S. troops. But hundreds of enlisted men and women refused the vaccine. They claimed it was unsafe. Despite lawsuits to stop the mandatory vaccination programs, more than a million military personnel have received these anthrax shots. In 2003, Private Kamila Iwanowska refused to take the anthrax vaccine and was court-martialed. I read on a lot of uh, side effects that uh, some troops experienced from taking it previously. I also uh, got familiar with the Gulf War Syndrome at the time. I read about, um, I should call them victims, I guess, people who, who got sick, uh, violently sick, from anthrax vaccine. Dr. Merrill Nass testified as an expert defense witness. She's treated soldiers suffering side effects she attributes to the vaccine. Multiple sclerosis, uh, lupus, illnesses that are equivalent to Gulf War syndrome where people have memory loss, muscle and joint pain, and uh, severe fatigue. 
um, a variety of gastrointestinal disorders. There really is quite a lot of data to show the vaccine is unsafe. Private Iwanowska was found guilty of disobeying orders and given a dishonorable discharge. The vaccine Iwanowska refused to take had been developed by Fort Detrick Army scientists, including, according to the FBI, anthrax attack suspect Bruce Ivins. Bioport Corporation is today called Emergent Biosolutions and has received close to $1 billion in government contracts. When asked to respond to concerns raised about the safety of its vaccine, the company issued the following statement. Quote, Our vaccine is the only FDA-approved vaccine to prevent the infection of anthrax, has been studied more than just about any vaccine in the United States, and has been deemed safe and effective. End quotes. In 2008, the U.S. signed a law declaring a seven-year anthrax emergency. Millions more doses of the anthrax vaccine were ordered for emergency response teams, and Fort Detrick underwent massive expansion. So if you add it together, it, it does appear that uh, we're gearing up to fight biological and chemical warfare. Could the 2001 anthrax attacks really have laid the ground for the unthinkable? Journalist Bob Cohen was coming to a frightening realization. The anthrax attacks may be turning the biodefense programs intended to protect us into programs that could trigger a biological arms race. That's what Francis Boyle fears. He's the author of the Biological Anti-Terrorism Act. It prohibits U.S. citizens from developing bioweapons for offensive use. If you have a look at the latest um, Department of Defense Chemical and Biological Defense Program report to Congress, the Pentagon is now in a position, in my opinion, from the reading through the latest report, that they could launch... Um, bio-warfare by means of anthrax anywhere in the world today. Uh, they have all the uh, uh, equipment, capability, uh, the troops have been inoculated, and everything's ready to go. Professor Boyle warns that such planning has global consequences. They are calling for a computer model uh, to simulate a worldwide strike with 5,000 biological weapons. It's in, it's in the document. It uses the term strike. That's offensive. Indeed, Russian Premier Vladimir Putin has warned the West that new breakthroughs in bio, nano, and information tech could lead to a new arms race. It's now obvious that a fresh round of a new arms race is starting. Unfortunately, it is not something that... Some observers suspect the Russians themselves continue to develop bioweapons at sites like the military lab from which anthrax escaped in 1979. Could the embers of the Cold War reignite and threaten the planet with a biological war? 
One man in a position to know was Ken Alibek. He was the number two man in the Soviet biowarfare program before he defected to the West. Alibek went on to consult with the US government and assisted in the FBI's anthrax investigation. He worries about the disappearing line between biodefense and bio-offense. The United States is spending a huge amount of money, billions and billions of dollars, for so-called biodefense, they say. They uh, create viruses like Spanish flu virus again. What would be the purpose for this? In some countries' mind, it could look like, say, like a work to, to, to create some new biological weapons. Today, Alibek runs a biotech company in Kiev, in Ukraine. He is shadowed by a bodyguard, always mindful of the untimely deaths of fellow military scientists, Vladimir Pesechnik and David Kelly. If somebody wants to kill you, there is no problem for these people, if they're professionals, to take care of it, correct? Alibek is also worried about the larger threat. I just hope that we're not so crazy to start creating something which could wipe out the entire, uh, the entire uh, mankind. What began as an investigation into a crime that killed five people was leading to a far more frightening scenario. And what if the treaty intended to prevent such a catastrophe? In Geneva, at the annual meeting of the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, international security expert Malcolm Dando sounded a warning. Those engaged in the life sciences need to develop a culture of responsibility to ensure that these are used for the benefit of mankind. And we're in the middle of a really major scientific and technological revolution in the life sciences. And what confronts us is the possibility that that major revolution will be used both for hostile as well as for benign purposes and the, the, the question we have to ask is can we stop that happening um, and the answer to that is we don't know the united states and russia have resisted the introduction of verification and inspections measures without these measures the treaty has no force paul walker is a demilitarization advocate Awareness raising and educational initiatives are biological treaty to date. Uh, trust me, I'm not doing anything. You know, trust me, my military biological research labs are just doing defensive research, not offensive research. And that leads one to be really suspicious about what's going on. The investigation into the 2001 anthrax attacks leads to a shadow world. The mystery surrounding the anthrax letters and the dead microbiologists may never be solved. What is certain is that the world of biological weapons is a world of dangerous secrets. Secrets that put us all at peril. You must understand that the human race stands at a critical turning point in terms of biowarfare technology. We are at risk now as I speak. 
We have to bring this research, development, and testing, and the technology itself under democratic control. We cannot rely upon the government to do this for us, and we certainly cannot rely on the scientists. So it's going to be up to you and to me to stop this, to reduce it, to bring it under control. If we do not, our children could suffer a biological catastrophe. Hey, Internet friends, our public school curriculum, prominent academia, television programming, Hollywood productions and advocacy organizations like the ADL or the American Defense League all have spent a great deal of time detailing this one event in history so that none of us ever forget it with the stated intention that our past is not repeated as our uncertain future looms before us. Essentially, we learn from history so we don't repeat the same mistakes. With Holocaust education at the forefront of our curriculums and news media, it's curious to me that this little detail about the Holocaust has been conveniently omitted from the conversation. Today we're going to talk about a book called Five Chimneys, taking place during World War II and written by a Jewish woman named Olga, a survivor of Auschwitz. Her husband was the director of a hospital in German-occupied Romania. Before Olga was a prisoner, she worked in the hospital serving as her husband's surgical assistant. One day, the SS called Olga's husband to the police station to interrogate him. They accused him of boycotting German pharmaceuticals in his clinic. Now, the SS or the Schutzstaffel was a paramilitary organization under Hitler, and it was documented in Olga's account that the pharmaceutical representatives of the German Bayer company were secretly members of the SS and had built a large underground unit of spies. Yes, indeed, that's the same Bayer who has now merged with Monsanto in present day. Monsanto, who is responsible for Agent Orange, Roundup, a whole bunch of cancer and death, and you know, now has control over the world's food supply. After the interrogation, Olga's husband didn't return home, and when she asked the SS what had happened to him, they said he'd been put, it, put to work in another clinic, and that her family was welcome to follow him there. They reassured her there was absolutely nothing to fear, so Olga made the fatal move to pack up her parents and children, who then went to the train station, only to find their neighbors and colleagues there too. And then they were prodded into cattle cars and taken to Auschwitz, which Olga described as a work and death camp where many war factories were in operation. Clearly, this is a tragic story, but there are many aspects of Olga's recollection of Auschwitz that stood out to me. She remembers the women whom she worked amongst weren't just Jewish, they were there because they were gypsy or a German soldier had been killed in their city or they were at the wrong place, wrong time, and had been picked up. But most women had no idea why they were there. Victims of circumstance, I guess. Olga said that nearly 80% of the folks in Auschwitz were Gentile, as most Jewish folks were reportedly killed upon arrival. Olga recalled that a mysterious powder was sprinkled on their food every day to stop their menstrual cycle and dull their hormonal responses, ultimately rendering them infertile. Apparently, the Germans were big on stopping fake news and disinformation from spreading because for disseminating false news within the camp, prisoners were hanged. 
But eventually, because of her prior experience in the hospital, Olga began working in the medical ward of Auschwitz and was able to witness some atrocious practices firsthand. We've all heard stories of the experiments carried out on twins by the infamous Dr. Mengele. But what I find most notable about Olga's account is the pharmaceutical experimentation on human guinea pigs during her time there. The German Bayer Company sent medicines and vials with no labels to indicate their contents. One time, the Bayer Company bought 150 women from the camp administration and experimented on them with unknown medicines, perhaps for hormone tests. Olga describes a French woman named Georgette who was used as a guinea pig in sterilization experiments. And when Olga saw her later at the hospital, Georgette was no longer a female. So these experiments were aimed at making men women and women men. Olga witnessed many a death by injection with a vial injected straight to the heart. Apparently, they were big fans of that method over there at Auschwitz. Additionally, Olga says vaccines were sent to the camp. Quote, These two had been experimented on and improved. These victims were chosen from French political prisoners, especially members of the French underground whom the Germans wanted to be rid of. End quote. In other words, they tested out vaccines on those who politically opposed them. Olga relayed that she heard the reason for all this experimentation was that, quote, there was a geopolitical reason for these experiments. If they could sterilize all non-German people still alive after their victorious war, there would be no danger of new generations of inferior peoples. At the same time, the living populations would be able to serve as laborers for about 30 years. After that time, the German surplus population would need all the space in these countries and the inferiors would perish without descendants." End quote. To wrap it up here, we have anecdotes of vaccines being used on guinea pig populations, death by injection. We have pharmaceuticals being sprinkled into the food supply to control sex hormones so a population can't reproduce. We have gender inversion by hormonal injection, combined with a tainted food and water supply. To top it off, we have fake news being punishable by death. Is any of this beginning to sound familiar? Meanwhile, the same company referenced numerous times in this book had agents working as spies and secret police during that time. It specifically says that Bayer sent unlabeled vials for death by injection to the camps. Bayer at that time was a part of a giant chemical cartel known as IG Farben. IG Farben was the second largest stockholder of Rockefeller Standard Oil and the single largest donor to the campaign of Adolf Hitler, despite many of the prominent scientists and figureheads of IG Farben being Jewish. Bayer used Auschwitz as a testing ground for genetic modification, chemical experiments, pharmaceuticals, and vaccine trials on prisoners. And after Bayer conducted these experiments, like testing out vaccines, they later collected the bodies for autopsy. And yeah, eventually some of the IG Farben scientists were tried for their war crimes at the Nuremberg trials. And after sentencing prominent scientists to incredibly short imprisonments, a good number of these German scientists were relocated from Germany to the United States in what we now know as Operation Paperclip, giving them new identities and installing them in positions of power within the United States government, heading up NASA, the CIA, and biological warfare programs. But don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying that there's a modern-day push for German supremacy. That's not what I'm saying at all. If that were the truth, then one might assume you wouldn't be able to talk about Germans at all without being shut down or censored. And personally, that's not my experience. Here's what I am saying, though. How are we supposed to constantly remember and learn from the Holocaust, but also ignore key lessons from this time period? 
Right now, vaccine passports are well on their way to being commonplace in many countries, where vaccinations for COVID will likely be mandatory for travel and work. Israel, of all places, is even mandating vaccines for basic activities like going to the store. How is this possible if Jewish history is riddled with anecdotes of vaccines being used to kill them? How are they shopping for foods controlled by the very people who were hell-bent on manipulating hormones through the food supply and medications? With the goal of totally stopping fertility, can you believe they let these people control the world's food supply? How did that happen? How do you even defend this? How do you defend a company like Bayer Monsanto still being in existence and having so much control over our daily lives? How do you defend compulsory vaccination when less than 100 years ago, vaccines were being used as death by injection? As compliance is being manufactured through fear of a virus with a 99% survival rate, the lessons of history are being forgotten, cast to the side in exchange for the false sense of safety. If we're supposed to learn the lessons of history so that the past isn't repeated, what are we all doing here, in this moment, right now? What's going on? Why isn't the ADL speaking up? What do you think, internet friends? You know I always look forward to your comments. Thank you so much for watching, subscribing, and supporting my channel on Patreon. Bye! Hey internet friends, Grace here, falling back Oh, look at that, I'm muted. Oh, dang it. Uh, more more technical problems happening over here again. Um, what I was saying is, uh, and thank you for those bearing th through the mutes today. It's like a moment of silence, and you can sit there and go, what's going on? Is there, did something happen? Um, really graceful. That was uh, one of her videos, and you can check out her channel. I'll put it in the show notes. And then, of course, uh, Francis Boyle's kind of epic outro there. That was a nice little transition, and uh, we're getting we're getting the hang around how to spin some of the wheels around here and turn some of the knobs. It's happening uh, ever so gracefully and slight, slight, slightly and slowly. Um, another addendum to that would be Medical Martial Law by Corbett and uh, the crypto uh, eugenics uh, by uh, Creature of Control episode that I did as well, and then uh, the other thing that I wanted to go into was I found that creator and some of her videos. I haven't reviewed all of her videos, but what I have seen is pretty good. But I found that through this uh, community here. Now here's the tylerbloyer.com Discord server, which I post all the updates when I go live. You can uh, see the BioSciWar chat where I drop some of the things that I'm looking into and researching. And uh, there's an article there that you might want to check out. Um, but the Grand Theft World community here, this server, has a, a thriving community here. There's some, some new people. I got a tag here as they come in, give them the right role. And they post links and investigations and there's discussions and there's great uh, people in here. There's a town hall that happens a few times a week at least, if not every working day, I think. 
the guy uh, Mark Soar, who was hosting that, is on his way to Acapulco to relocate from Vancouver, I think. So he might be MIA at the moment, but I'm sure he will be back to host. But otherwise, he was just more holding that space where there's places where you can talk to other people, basically, about the things that are going on in a safe environment that was non-threatening. There's moderators if there was anything that got out of hand. Um, and be able to talk openly. Th that developed from a COVID-19 town hall in the beginning of January of 2020 into the Grand Theft World server. Now there's a community there. To get in there, uh, in the show notes of this episode, you can find a link to get in there. So here's the BioSciWar research of a different color today on March 3rd, or sorry, April 3rd of 2021. And let's see, yeah, there's a link here to leave some tips for Streamlabs. There's uh, the Grand Theft World membership link. And then also to get into autonomy, which you might have heard of, you can follow through with the 19 skills videos or the 19 skills uh, PDF download. And, uh, you know, hint, hint, that'll get you into the marketing, which will expose you to the course of autonomy. And I wouldn't suggest things like that unless I thought it was going to be of a huge benefit to you. So at, in this case, I'm not just like promoting some random product here to, to at the end to plug, but rather that in the essence of trying to assist other people understand things that could really help them, that would be one of those. And uh, the other way to get in there would be the autonomy obstacle course, which we just released Recently, the media team and the Autonomy Unlimited support, as well as Richard Grove, uh, the star of the show there, putting forward an excellent course to explain the course to people and get them through to being able to join up into Season 5, which we're in now. And uh, we'd be happy to help you and have on your journey and to success, as well as have you in the course. We'd be happy to do that. So, again, to get into the Grand Theft World community, you just click this and you will then be brought to a page where you can sign up for $10 a month. It's like nothing to be able to join up and then get in the Kajabi app as well, which gives you all the access to the replays and a bunch of other behind the scenes material um, and an app that you can use on your phone to get that. So if their website, if our website never goes down, which there were some issues with Grand Theft World this week, and recently, you know, in a migration and some other things that have been going on, there can be problems with the site. There could be problem accessing the podcast, but we do make it easily one click right here. Podcast, hit that. You'll go to the latest episode, a nice big picture that you can click and get in there. And then it's just like the TylerBlair.com show. There's an embed of the audio. You can subscribe to the Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, RSS. You know, you can do that on, on TylerBlair.com for my material or on Grand Theft World, same thing for that podcast, as well as the hosting on Odyssey. And I'm gonna be switching out some of my embeds on my site with Odyssey embeds coming up soon. Um, but these shows are kind of starting to you know, highlight each other. The BioSci War and Grand Theft World, I think are good curriculum to go hand in hand together, which is why I'm pointing it out. The other thing that I'm trying to do in the style of some of these other researchers that I've been uh, learning from their work is make my posts a little bit more detailed. So I'll get the post up like this one. It's up now. It's live for today's show with all the resources. Um, if I've missed something, I'll go through and clean it up and add it later. But then also in the page itself, there'll be more material. So in last week's episode, as I go through during the week and now like go and add to the show notes and make sure it's cleaned up, 
I'm going to add important sections that happened in that episode in the post with the reference right below it with the actual link as it was during that time. Because then you can actually, that, that does a few things. It archives the data if those websites ever dis disappear. And it also shows the link so that you can go get the archive link or whatever um, from the actual link itself. There's not a hyperlink, it's there. And you can see what it was at that time. That way, 20 years in the future, somebody's trying to click that link and it's not working, they can go and get the archive link and find it. Then there's always like the episodes that have happened previously up to this one, the see also section, which is growing with the most important links that we've covered in the BioSci War. And then that week's references typically in pretty close order. And then like those important links at the bottom that I find helpful for you to access there and follow us on the various social media platforms. Um, we appreciate everyone for watching live on the BioSci War, but then I also appreciate those in the archives and sharing. It's cool to see people go through and watch the series and uh, see those numbers kind of grow in the series itself because that shows to me that they're getting value out of the series and that they're taking the time to go and watch more than just the one episode. So um, we'll end it there for today at that same kind of target three hour and 40 to four hour minute mark that we've been doing for these shows for this uh, series and uh, really would like to thank again those that stuck in with me live and give some commentary and feedback that means a lot but uh, to those in the future uh, share this work out with your friends family and I uh, hope this inspires those young researchers out there to get on the horse and uh, see how easy it is this is a one-man production it's amazing what we can do here in 2021 to help spread information and awareness and raise consciousness about these topics. So it's not that difficult. If you'd like to know more about how this is done, uh, you could sign up for my course. Just one last shameless plug here at the end. If you go to my front page, TylerBlair.com, you'll see this within a stone's throw. And what I'm kind of implying there is that it's not as hard as it seems. Ooh, look, I need to update that link. See? See? That's good. Good. We found a problem. A link that's broken. Uh, that's because I was updating some of the things with the uh, course this weekend as making it improved and better. But what that is, is a course on media production. And I'll teach, I teach basically how to get to this point, which is not, I'm not saying this is the best and the point that everybody should strive to be. But I have kind of taken steps to document how to do these things. And it's in beta mode right now. So it's a free, uh, offer that you can go and take advantage of to learn how to do these things. That way you can also get the information out that you're trying to get out. The goal there is to help other people be able to produce uh, and their content. That's the idea of within the Stones Media Network. And uh, what I'm doing here is also a showcasing of how to get that material out. What we do over at Grand Theft World is the same. And uh, future projects, my best work is yet to be produced. All right. Well, we appreciate everybody for sticking in there. This has been the TylerBlair.com live stream, the bio war research of a different color. Thank you guys for watching, and we'll talk to you next time.